Yo, guys and gals, just a quick reminder, coming up October 26th is Gravity Lab Radio Film Festival 2019. This year, we're consolidating the show. We're bringing it down to just one drop zone. Logistically, it's just so much easier, and we want to bring all our friends together, all our family together in one place to throw one massive party. Skydive Spaceland Houston, October 6th. October 26th, 2019. Uh, we are working on that prize list right now. We just got word back today. GoPro is going to once again support the show. GoPro 7 is what they are currently throwing down on the table. Uh, we'll see if that upgrades if new releases come out. In previous years, that's what happened. But man, no promises. A GoPro 7 is a pretty dope prize in the first pl- a dope prize in the first place. Skydive Spaceland has thrown out free jumps once again. I have already talked to LMB, Larson, Bruzegard, LB Altimeters. They will be supplying an Ares 2 and a Protract 2. That's $750 worth of devices right there alone. Blue Skies Magazine's throwing in a digital subscription. We have more prizes to come. We have more details to or uh, not details, but just details on those prizes. Details are simple. Limit your video to five minutes. We like royalty-free music, but it doesn't have to be royalty-free music. We want to share your video on social media. If it's not royalty-free, we can't share it on social media. If it's royalty-free, we can. So great if it is. If it isn't, use whatever music you want. We'll show it. We'll show it on a 144-inch screen. We'll have some good uh, sound systems going on there. It'll sound good. It'll look good. It has to be aviation-related, skydiving, wind tunnel, paragliding, some type of flight-related. It can be a skit. It can be a story. There's really no limitations. We don't want to limit your imagination. The video has to be into a Gravity Lab Radio team member. That's myself, Justin, or Nick Lott, Ben Nelson, if he's in town for the show, uh, uh, by 3 p.m. Central Standard Time on October 26. Come join us. Come hang out. Come party. As always, there's no entry fees. There's nothing. We just want to throw a dope party. Tonight's Gravity Lab Radio is also brought to you by the Rating Center. The Rating Center, we are a full-time rating school. We offer coach courses, AFF courses, tandem courses. We also do canopy coaching and canopy courses. We are based out of Skydive Spaceland Houston. We also uh, have a campus in San Marcos and in Dallas, and those campuses are growing, and we'll have more and more courses coming to you. If you're not in any of those places and you want us to travel, we do have traveling examiners. We do have traveling coaches. We'd be happy to come help you out. Send us an email, trc at theratingscenter.com. I own the Rating Center, and I'm very passionate about the sport. I'm very passionate about skydiving. If you listen to the show, you know that. I am adamant that my team members are the same way. Any member of the TRC family is very passionate about skydiving, very passionate about safety, and very passionate about people. You're going to get the best of the best out there with the TRC team members. Check out theratingcenter.com. You can find the Rating Center on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, If you have any questions, hit us up, trc at theratingcenter.com. Tonight's guest was super, super last-minute scheduling. We expected tonight to be off. But Staff Sergeant Blake Gaynor, I first met as uh, in, in 2011 teaching a coach course in Louisiana. And uh, since then, he joined the U.S. Army Golden Knights. He is part of the demonstration team, traveling the world, doing demo skydives, doing all sorts of cool dope jumps. He's in town this week uh, specifically for the celebration of the moon landing. They got a super dope jump up and, uh, coming up, but you'll hear more about it on this episode. Enjoy the show. I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. 
I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You are listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? All right, gentlemen. Staff Sergeant Blake Gaynor. Did I get the rank right? You got it right. That's it. What's up, buddy? How have you been? I've been pretty good. Uh, it's been a long time since I left home. It's super cool to get back. Uh, I've come back in town a few times since I left. The, on- the only other occasion that I can recall was a jump into the Kima boardwalk. Think about that, Mike, for a second. Um, okay. Man, so let's get a few people a little background history because we've known each other for a while. We've been hanging out for the last 20 minutes. But you and I first met in 2011. Correct. Skydive, Louisiana, which was then in Gillum. Was that how we said that name? Yeah, Gillum, Louisiana. And uh, he's moved since Wild Bill. Bill, Bill, Bill Giesland. Uh At that point, you were in the military? You were Army? Yes, I was in the Army. I actually just got back from Afghanistan. I did an deployment with uh, 4th Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. And I just skydived out of Skydive, Louisiana, and was trying to build up my jump numbers and my prerequisites to eventually go try out for the Golden Knights. And you were offering a coach course. Uh, I think somebody, maybe Todd Falkenberry, I'd got in touch with you and organized getting a coach course run out there. I think that's who it was. I'm really embarrassed to say this name, Paul Yeagley. Yeah, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah, Paul had done training with me. I had done some ratings with him, and he pulled me out there to get the course running Yeah, that time around. Because Todd was actually a candidate in that course, too, wasn't he? He was, correct. Yeah. So Todd brought me out for other courses, but uh, Paul Yeagley brought me in for that one. Paul Yeagley by Trathone? Yeah. Cool. And I love Paul. I'm just talking shit about you, buddy. <laughs> So you, we, you went to that coach course. Um, I did not realize at that point your goal was to become a Golden Nugget. Yeah, I man, it's crazy. I didn't really know that it was even possible. I saw the Golden Knights as a kid. Mm-hmm. That was your, I mean, stereotypical story. I went to an air show with my family. I watched these guys jump out of an airplane. They had smoke on their feet, and <laughs> they fell together. And then at the end of a skydive, they all just flew away from each other. And I thought they were superheroes. Man, and those were the Golden Knights. Those were the Golden Knights. I was at an air show in Shepherd Air Force Base when I was maybe like eight years old. Dude, so many of us have so many different stories, all very similar said and done, but so many cool things that got us into the sport and things that we idolized. You've become your idol. Yes. How disappointing of. are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever heard about the uh, the kind of the weirdness of what it's like to meet one of your heroes, you know? Yeah. Um, there's always going to be some aspect of now that you've like accomplished your big goal, you're always looking for what's next. Mm-hmm. It, it's never over. You're never really satisfied. So once you achieve one goal, you kind of set to one and then keep going to the next one. Or what I like to do is set a whole bunch of goals, get almost all the way to them, and then just have like a plethora of unfinished projects. <laughs> <laughs> so you just... just- get decent enough at all of them and never excel at any pretty much that's a great life philosophy sounds like you should be in the navy <laughs> wait a minute you were navy at first i was i was navy before i joined the army oh four if i remember right correct yep i did some homework i uh your bio is on the uh, website obviously i think you know uh, that. Yeah. so a lot of people think golden knights and they immediately think eight-way team four-way team and even more recently the free fly team and, and other people and no doubt the Golden Knight competition teams have done a great job representing our sport within the sport. But if I 
and I don't know 100% sure, but if I'm right, I think the demonstration team is technically the largest team. Let's see. The eight-way team has obviously the eight people in slot, the one alternate, and then a videographer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then currently the only other competition team we have is the VFS team, which is currently the four guys in slot and the videographer. Think about that, Mike. (laughs) Is it better now? Keep pointing at your face. Yeah, really, you want to stay in contact with it. Okay. You make love to the microphone. All right, I'm just going to keep it, like, pushed up against the chair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what does that bring that to? The more awkward, the the better. (laughs) So basically, our otters that we use, we don't get to gut our otters like most drop zones do. Mm -hmm. Our competition section fills up one of our otters, and I think that comes out to, like, 16 seats on the plane. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, the demonstration section will consist of 10 jumpers and a drop zone safety officer. And there's two demo sections. So, yeah, it'd be fair to say that the demo is the the bigger section. Yeah, Black and and gold are the two teams. You're on the gold team, correct? Correct, gold team. Yeah, and one team alone is not. But the demo team in its entirety versus the competition team in its entirety. The demo team is is larger. Correct. And then people also don't realize there is uh, five teams, if I remember right. I've, I've dealt with Knights a good part of my life. The uh, third team that people probably uh, realize exists is the tandem team. Correct. They do a lot of the VIP tandems. And, and a lot of times I think they work with you guys as far as you might be at the same air shows. Uh, not so much recently. Uh, we haven't. The tandem team has gotten super busy. In fact, I would tell you that the tandem section of the Golden Knight is the busiest section out of all of them currently. Those guys have been on the road since the beginning of the... So I had a conversation with the demo, uh, the tandem team leader about a month ago. And so what was that, six months into the year? And they had already been on the road 165 days. Dang, that is a large that is part of the non-stop. year. So the other two parts of the team, one is the admin team part, and I don't remember the proper name of them, um, and the other one is the aircraft support? Yeah, so we just call it the administrative support section, okay. and that contains logistics, media relations, uh, operations, parachute maintenance, and media relations. And then the aviation section is the, the pilots and the mechanics and the contractors that fly and maintain the aircraft. So all that cool stuff aside, what are you doing in Houston this weekend, bro? Uh, Super exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we're actually getting to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landings. And today... Apollo 11 landing. Today marks that anniversary, if I remember the right date. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm actually foggy on the details i know that i'm jumping the, tomorrow the, the, i think the celebration <laughs> is has a big countdown tomorrow and if i remember correctly july from this, 24th july 24th we're way off did, did they take off today is that what it was what, what about, was the launch date what about the leap years and stuff yeah did you, did you forget to <laughs> <laughs> the time delay are you on the, the solar flares european calendar is that are, are, are you what time zone Aztec is this? only it's the only calendar did you remember to convert to zulu time <laughs> can, do you, can you see what date that mission took off because i do think today marks uh, uh one of the uh landmark dates of that mission and i could be wrong but so you're in town you guys are doing some jumps celebrating this yeah we're gonna jump into space center houston tomorrow at 9 20 um, that's kind of kicking off their celebration. So the army band's going to come out they're going to play some music. We're going to do a jump and we're, we're jumping in this big old Apollo 11 flag and we're going to hand it off. All the, all the active astronauts are going to sign it. 
and then we'll hang out with the crowd there as like as long as we can, as long mm-hmm. as it's like relevant, you know. Um, and then at, at that point, the majority of those celebrations just becomes things that you can go check out. There's like a really cool STEM activity center in there. There's a Mars rover game, which like no big deal, but I stacked two blocks on that thing. <laughs> was, I was pretty impressed with myself, and I hope everybody else is too. So the 24th is when they came back to Earth. They landed on the moon on the 20th, so tomorrow. Tomorrow is a celebration. That's, okay, yep. that, that's what I thought, yeah, because they were okay. saying there's going to be a big countdown to like the exact second of the anniversary tomorrow night. And they got this cool video that they're going to be playing at Space Center Houston to lead up to it, followed by some fireworks. Um, but we actually will not be participating in the evening portion of the Space Center celebration because we're going to head to Discovery Green for an evening jump at 7 o'clock, which we are really looking forward to. Um, I'm not from Houston. I'm actually originally from Dallas, other Boo. than learning to skydive. <laughs> <laughs> other than uh, learning to skydive in Houston, I don't know the city very well. So it was my first time seeing Discovery Green. Where did you learn? I learned, I learned at Spaceland Houston. Did you? Yeah, Jason Hyder was my instructor. No wonder you're not a good skydiver. <laughs> <laughs> Much love to Jason Hyder. <laughs> <laughs> he tried. He tried his best. Oh, man, you got the special ed version, not because you're the student, because of the instructor. No, Jason's a great guy. He's a great instructor. Yeah, he was, uh, he, it was exactly the kind of pace I wanted coming. Like, I was, like, fresh off a of deployment, and your life's always kind of, like, go, go, go. And having Jason Hyder as an instructor was very much go, 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 go. It was do a jump, knock out a debrief, knock out a dirt dive, get your gear on and go. And so I would show up for a four-day weekend. I showed up for a lot of four-day weekends where I just stared at the ceiling, you know, like looking at a weather, a lot of, a lot of coastal weather here in Houston once you get in the summer. Yeah. You, and by the way, you can move this. You'll, you'll see when I get active. You can. It's, gotcha. It's, yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's like a robot arm that you can stack things with. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so you put me through, like, I, I think on one day as a student, I did nine jumps in one day. Nice. That's a, that's a good pace. That's how I like to learn personally. Yeah. Uh, most people aren't capable of that. It's too much emotionally. Physically, I think most people can deal with that number of jumps, but the chemical wear and tear, the endorphins, the adrenaline, the dumps up and down, most people wear out at three to four. I've uh, jumped with a guy on 13 jumps in a given day. People who have a high level of discipline, a high level of, of emotional training. I've been in Afghanistan for the last few years. Yeah. I've been shot at a few times. I, I can actually, things. it's funny you say that. I can think, I never even thought about this. I'm not an AFF instructor. I did end up getting my tandem rating eventually, uh, but I've never done AFF instruction. And I can actually remember on a few occasions of uh, like having jumps go down and just being absolutely stoked, having such a good time, and just not wanting to stop jumping, and Jason being like, hey, I think we're going to call it for the day. And I'm like, why? This is awesome. <laughs> Are you not going on the same skydives I am? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of times as instructors, we look at what you're doing, and we can see that you're still in a good place, but we can see diminishing returns start to happen, and before it becomes a waste, before bad things hit. Like, you know what? Let's end on a good note. In a lot of training, I'll actually see where, man, we'll, we'll almost never end at your apex. Because if we're your apex, we still have more to learn. But when I see that decline start to happen, I don't take it. You know, I'll, I'll let it decline some, but before it crashes, I like to end. Because I want you to walk away thinking about all the good things, not focusing on the wrong things. For sure. Yeah, and, personal image is a big thing. 
For sure. And I know Jason is pretty big on that as well. And he actually is not big on push, 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 push. One of the reasons I think he was a great instructor is I say was he doesn't skydive anymore. We're not for a living. Um, he read the students needs. So he pushed because you let him. Because I saw plenty of students where he was super slow and super methodical because, you know, they needed to lick their elbow somewhere along the way. <laughs> so I think it was more uh, he, he, he read you and he understood what you wanted. So you, you learned, you're from Dallas. You, uh, where were we at again? I lost track. Uh, I was just talking about this. There's a, a, one of the demos the, that we're doing Discovery this weekend. Green. Discovery, Discovery Green. Discovery Green. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Well, while you're doing that, Justin, uh, pull up a Google Earth image of Discovery Green so you can show the Facebook users how tight and, and what these fellows are jumping into because, holy F, this is a pretty badass shot. So you guys are jumping in in the evening. Correct. Yeah, seven o'clock. And you got to. Uh, so you come here. At you for any event like this, a different team member shows up ahead of time. What your scout? What are you doing here early? Yeah, it's. I mean, we call it advance advancing the show, and you're basically just scheduling all the logistics. Um. So I mean, we gotta make sure that we have vehicles to get personnel and equipment from place to place. Gotta I'm- make. I'm just seeing the Discovery Green shot and remembering how tight that can be. Yeah. Keep going. That's what she said? Yeah. Title of your sex tape. That's what... (laughs) um, So vehicles, making sure you guys have access to... Uh, Make sure the notams are filed, which I actually still have one that I need to do. Um, I don't know. if you ever filed a notam? Uh, No. I've done all the work with somebody and I didn't do the final paperwork. So basically, you call the NOTAM hotline mm-hmm. to file the NOTAM, and usually the person on the other end of the line schools you, and you learn something new about NOTAMs every time. It's a it's a quite the experience. So I have I have one more of those I got to do, um, and then I just got to make sure that everybody's got the like a place to sleep, uh, the and then like what does the show want? You know, sometimes like if we're doing like a big sporting events, like if we were going to jump into Houston Texans. Um, somebody like that will have very expensive airtime. Usually somebody's forting the bill to, to make sure that that stuff goes on ESPN or Fox Sports or whatever the other news networks are, sports news networks. And, uh, and they build us like a pretty precise timeline. They say, hey, your show starts at 9.30 and it ends at 9.33 and 27 seconds. And if you go one second over that, you're, you know, you're costing somebody money. So it, you basically make sure that you formulate a plan that is going to fit the needs of the person who brought you there. Man, one of uh, – so let's go back to NOTAMs and finally that. A, a lot of people think it, and when I think of military skydiving, I immediately think about, you can do whatever you want. And to a large point, military skydiving is different as far as cloud clearance requirements because most or a lot of military skydiving – is special forces operations. They are trying to do other training. They don't follow necessarily the same FA regs we do. Um, but when it comes to normal civilian military skydiving, th- is that a word that makes sense? Civilian. It, it does make sense to me because I, I would. That's where I would put the Golden Knights. We're a hybrid of military and civilian skydiving. Yeah, you guys still have to do all the same things we do when it comes to demonstration jumps. Yes, we got to file a notum. We have a, have to have a certificate of authorization filed. Um, you can't, you got to follow the 1550 rule. You can't be 15 feet above the crowd and got to be 50 feet away. When you dealt, when you, uh, you've already filed one of your notams already. 
Correct. When you did that phone call, how did how was that Houston operator to deal with? Was he? He was awesome. He yeah. was the best NOTAM operator I've ever dealt with. I was like, hey, I uh, haven't done this in a while, so can you, you know, I, I apologize in advance. Um, our pilots made us a really good checklist for, like, what to say and how to do it. And this guy was totally like, oh, no problem. I got you. Yeah. And he, he walked me through the process. And then at the end of it, he even went and helped me do what's called a pointer notum. So normally you file a notum that goes off of a Vortac, which I'm going to be perfectly honest with everybody out there. I don't even know what a Vortac is. Justin, Google that for us. Vortac, V-O-R-T-A-C. I know what a Vortac is, but after those words, I don't know what it is either. <laughs> um, notice, Notum is notice to airmen for people who don't know that shorthand. So I will tell you Jason Hyder, Al Sailor, the REMAX skydiving team. Those are some of the people you can thank for that Notum. Because we deal with, Skydive Spaceland deals with uh, finally NOTAMs every so often for our demos. The REMAX Skydiving demo team does it a lot as well. And both entities have built a great relationship with our local FAA and have worked really hard to build trust and respect between them. And I was curious to see how that was going just because you're not any part of the It entity. was the best one I've ever had. So he, he did the pointer NOTAM for me, which is where they go take the radial and distance off of the nearest airport mm-hmm. um, which is often when you look at a coa it'll just or a certificate of authorization for for a demonstration it'll say okay you're 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 asking to jump within an area defined as a two nautical mile radius off of the 183 radial from the hub vortac at um 11 nautical miles off of that, that, that that's that's kind of what my my notum looked like today and then additionally sometimes you'll call to file a notum and they'll say, okay, I also need the pointer notum, which is basically the radial from the center point and the distance from the nearest airport. And if you're not like a pilot looking at diagrams, that question will normally stump you. So the the west or the east Texas notum operator totally just did that for me. Hey, dude, so awesome, man. I love our local FAA. Skydivers complain about the FAA a lot. And I think it's uh, – I was talking with a buddy today uh, – He's a manager of a drop zone, and we were talking about how one of his staff member hates him. And I'm like, well, it's you know, a lot like cops. Most people who hate cops did something illegal, right? <laughs> yeah. Most people who don't get along with the FAA is because they did something to not get along with the FAA. Work with them, and they'll work with you. What's Vortac, uh, Grubs? So it's a radio-based navigational aid that's a co-located a VOR, or VHF Omni Directional Range, and a take-on tactical air navigation system. Basically, it is a radio signal pointing you in a direction. I think that is the shortest and, and most layman, lame version to explain it. Yeah, as I understand it. It's uh, basically pilots, like the pre-GPS stuff, right? You yes, follow, yes. You follow VOR. That's how pilots plotted their course. They knew they needed to They dial in a VOR just like you would on a radio. You dial the, the, the navigational aid and they'll say, okay, that vortex in that direction. All right, I'm heading in the right direction. So it's yeah. like a radio frequency beacon that you're, you're heading towards. Boop. Correct. Um, so you, you, you dealt with this FAA guy. You, that's what your job is here ahead of time. You're, you're basically scouting ahead of time. One of the things that you mentioned is in some of these higher profile demos and especially the ones with sporting networks, like you, you got to land at this time, you know, when the national anthem goes off, the blue angels fly over at an exact moment at NASCAR events, the golden Knights land at an exact moment or fast tracks demo team. You guys dial it in so well. How do you pull that off? 
That is a big conglomerative conglomerative. I can't say the word. That is a big teamwork effort from a whole bunch of different entities. So the it's reason teamwork, bro. The the reason somebody shows up ahead of time is to speak to the person. We either have an iPod, you know, and we know exactly how long the national anthem is on our iPod or our CD that we give them, or we talk to the army band and uh, and bands make it a lot easier on you to work out the exact time. Okay. Because they know. So I don't know particularly how the Blue Angels do it, um, but I would imagine there's somebody near the band with a countdown timer doing something like three, two, like some kind of countdown letting the band know because when people are singing it or performing it, they can speed it up or slow it down to meet it. Okay. Um, But so, and a lot of skydivers don't, I think a lot of skydivers, if they actually saw the parachutes we use on the demonstration section, their minds would be blown because I know mine was when I first went to tryouts. And uh, I'm about to go off on a tangent, so I'm going to try not to. Now bring it. Okay, so we'll go off on that one. I found a picture of him. When I... uh, I'm stalking your Facebook. uh, when, uh, When I first went to tryouts, I had no idea really what I was getting into with the Golden Knights. I thought that you went to tryouts and they ran you through some kind of stress test. And based off of that, they would decide if you went to the competition section or the tandem section or if you went to the demo section. But the the demo section is actually like the main starting point. And we use these giant seven-cell parachutes. And when you first see somebody, unless you've ever done like classic accuracy in skydiving, you wouldn't really understand what you're watching. Are you guys using lightnings or zeros? Do you know? Uh, it'd be closer to a zero probably, okay. but it, the co- it's called Star Trek. Yes. It's, made, it's a company called Precision Aerodynamics, I believe. I know the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, they're, they're great for what we do. For doing tight land, like a lot of people will look at like a landing. We were looking at the picture of Discovery Green. Uh, for a Star Trek parachute, if, if you've got enough training on it, it's, it's not too difficult there's just some things you have to keep in mind because you sink those parachutes. You know, if you turn in too tight, you get deep into brakes and you actually just bring it straight out of the sky and then you get a little bit of forward speed. But you can be really deep in brakes, bring it up just a little bit and flare with a, a very short flare stroke and still get a decent landing with them. In most parachutes, that would suck. In most parachutes, that would suck. And if you're coming off of traditional skydiving training that you would get at any drop zone... And you show up the tryouts and they're instructing you on how you're going to do accuracy. It's like, what? Because <laughs> you basically see dudes fly in and they flare like 10 feet off the ground. and But like it works out. So they're kind of still moving forward as they stop. And then boom. And they set down. And they kind of squat out the landing. And normal skydiving, you would never flare that high off the ground and like stick it. And then oftentimes. Yeah, I've seen some of my students. Because. Of, <laughs> <laughs> You should have seen me when I was a young jumper. Um, these parachutes, they come behind you like this, but the way you want to land them is with them over your head. So you'll flare, kind of fly through the air like this, and then once you've like stopped forward speed, you actually bring it back over your head. What that looks like when you're watching the training go down is somebody does a big, strong flare really high off the ground, and then they bring their hands back up. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it looks like they're just throwing them up, but it's like usually really calculated, or the person has a whole bunch of experience doing it. And that's something you would never do. A normal skydiving is just drop a flare. That's what it looks like. But that is pretty much what you do. A big part of it is is with normal parachutes, we flare in proximity to the ground. 
where you guys are flaring in proximity to a location and then riding the elevator the rest of the way down. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, you, so you were one of the guys on the Kima. I've uh, done, I have done Kima before. Because the most recent Kima, th- it was a really good example of a dude flaring 30,000 feet above the ground <laughs> and riding it straight down. And I heard some buddies really like shit talk it because, yeah, with a traditional parachute, you look like an idiot. If that was a traditional parachute. Yeah, if you do that with a traditional parachute, especially into the Kima boardwalk, Ooh, it would hurt. But it, the guy stuck it. I don't know who it was, but he stuck it. Was it uh, just in 2018? I think so. Whoever it was stuck it in the middle of the star on the Kima <laughs> boardwalk. I, I wasn't there. I have a feeling if it was in 2018, it was my buddy, Sergeant First Class John Lopez. That is definitely his signature move. He weighs like 140 pounds, <laughs> and he can just shut it down from the top ropes. Dude, he, whoever it was, man, and, and I'm, it was 2018, I'm positive, mad respect to John Lopez because <laughs> he, he did a great job. He represented skydiving well. He represented the Golden Knights well. I've always grown up calling them the Golden Nuggets, so forgive me if I mess up y'all's name every now no, and then. No, it's okay. We get, we get it a lot. Yeah, and it's uh, skydivers in general will call them the Nuggets, but I think it's that affectionate brotherhood name. It's, it's because we love you guys. <laughs> Um, man, it's okay. I thought Justin was getting my attention for a second. He was not. Um, so the Golden Knight, or you're here in town to to scout out to get ready for this show. Part of what you're also doing is media. This morning you did a radio show. Correct. What other kind of things are you looking at? What kind of things do you do for the media on your way in? Uh, so we also, matter of fact, this is a really good af- opportunity to advertise. I don't know if there's any uh, media people working in skydiving. So. We also have airplane rides, like incentive rides, and uh, it's definitely not like riding in a jet or whatever, but we'll, we have six seats per jump that we put in the back of our aircraft, so six people sit right next to the door and just basically get to ride along and see how we do a demonstration operation. Um, we try to give those primarily to press, but active duty military as well can, can hop on those rides pretty easily. And that's out of y'all's order. So on this one, we actually have our new flagship, which is a Dash 8, Bombardier Dash 8. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for anybody out there who doesn't know what that aircraft is, it's if you've ever flown from like one kind of small airport to another kind of small airport and you were on a bigger twin turboprop aircraft, it was probably a Dash 8. Uh, so we, we got two. One's on the way. One we're currently jumping. And that thing is awesome. It gets it can get to thirteen thousand five hundred feet in about six and a half seven minutes. Nice. When when we did our winter training in it this year, we could not hang. Like we could, we we hung in there, but we were finishing eight to ten jump days by eleven o'clock in the morning, just completely gassed. Jeez. Just because I mean, you got you, you get in, you sit down, you buckle in, you unbuckle, gear check, and leave. Yeah, for the the low, we, you know, we call them. Traditionally, would be thought of as a hop and pop in skydiving. We call it a stack out. The whole team just jumps out and kind of staggers exits, and everybody pulls at the same time and kind of opens in like a ladder configuration. Yeah. Trying to look at the camera and make sure I'm demonstrating. Most people won't actually see you on the camera. Okay. Yeah, most people actually download this on their phones and listen. Very. uh, We have a large number who watch on Facebook Live. Gotcha. But uh, I think we are averaging uh, over 400 downloads now an episode, which there's 400 stupid people an episode <laughs> 400 people who are more stupid for listening to the episode would be a better statement that's funny yeah so and those you guys are leaving from five-ish uh yeah i mean 
five yeah five thousand foot would probably be like the highest we'd do a stack out from maybe six thousand feet and the lowest we'll do it from is two thousand feet and so you guys don't have to follow uspa bsrs for altitude we do so well you're getting a waiver we have the waiver. We have the, the waiver because they they had at one point in time changed the minimum exit to 2,500 foot. Yes. Worded and less wavered by SNTA. Yes. So that was. And really a lot of people, uh, oh, years ago, I, I've been involved with the board and on the board over years. And I, that point was just uh, advising the board not on. And the conversation was, A, we all open higher in general. B, our canopies take much longer to open. Uh, so pulling at two grand, I can snivel to a grand with some of these canopies. So let's up the altitude. And the immediate argument was, we're doing a demo. We have to leave at two thousand because the ceiling is at two five. We're opening right away with canopies that open quick. Can't we still do that? Well, then yeah, let's make sure we leave a waiver process in. Yeah, right it, tool for the right job. That's yeah. all it is. You know, it's it's as long as you have that right tool. You know, if somebody came up to me like, "Yo, DJ, I want to do a demo. We're gonna uh, exit two grand, and I'm jumping a velocity." I'm like, "No, you can't jump a velocity at two grand." Exactly. I'm gonna jump a star ta- a, a, a a zero or star track or star track. Thank you, star track. I was just making star track jokes with somebody earlier. Um, yeah, you can do that. That makes sense. Yeah, that's about as good of an example as you could get to the. I mean, velos will snivel anywhere from a grand to a a grand two hundred. Man, I uh, did a hop and pop one day from 2,000 feet. This is back when two grand was the BSRs on a velo. Oh, my gosh. I left. It opened. I unstowed my brakes. I pulled my front riser to do my 270. Like, no shit. That was, thank God the spot was money. That was all there was to it. You uh, follow the Red Devils by any chance on Instagram or Facebook? <sighs> I want, who, who are the Red Devils? Uh, that is the British Army parachute Okay. Team. I would say it's the Canadian or the Brits, but I can't remember which. And it is the Brits. It is the Brits, yep. Yeah, I, I have, don't follow them closely, but I know of them. Yeah, so uh, a buddy of mine did a – they I, I'm not really sure what the BPA's regulations are, but he did he did a pretty low one. He did like a – it was on a Valkyrie, and it was pretty similar. It was yeah. open or exit, pull, slider, brakes, turn. Killed it. It was one of the, one of the cooler demo videos I've ever seen. Man, it's uh, you gotta have the best spot for that. Yeah, it has to be perfect. Yeah. But it, what it's you know, granted, if you're the guy exiting and spotting, you can really set yourself up for success too. That's the only way mine worked out. We had a low ceiling. I was the guy spotting. I exited when I wanted to, thinking I'd have more time than I had, not realizing it was gonna be as long of a snivel as it was. And yeah, no, it, it worked out mainly by luck, Man. a little bit by skill. Could you imagine if like, uh, you went to go unstow your brakes and one of them didn't unstow or something like that? Dude, right? Man, I'm at a grand. Basically, uh, I think 1,100 feet when I unstow my brakes. I unstow my brakes and anything goes wrong, it's probably straight to my reserve because by the time I unstow my brakes, I'm at 800 to 700 feet. I've got time to cut away. Yeah, spiraling on a velo. I, we'll talk a little bit later on, but you've got a lot of high-performance canopy skill sets behind you nowadays. A little bit. A little bit? A decent yeah. bit. Yeah, I competed in the advanced class for uh, like one or two FLCPAs, two NECPLs, and then I did a Sunpath meet. Yeah, we'll get to that because yeah. I, 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 it's super curious because, God, back in 2011, how many jumps did you have at your coach course? Two, I think I was right at 100. I think I got to 100 right before you taught the course. Yeah, so that's I, I remember you as a 100-jump wonder. So when I'm doing my homework yesterday, and yesterday <laughs> was it yesterday, two days ago that we set up this show, um, I'm looking online trying to catch up with you. I'm like, you were swooping, but you only have a hundred jumps. How can you be <laughs> swooping? 
<laughs> so going back to what you guys are doing this weekend, and, and Mr. G showed a shot of Discovery Green. You've been out there and you've scouted it. Correct. Can you describe the the parameters? What size area you're jumping into? I want to say it is about 350 feet long and about 160 feet wide. Title of your sex is. tape. <laughs> 350 long, 150 foot wide. If you ever jump at Spaceland Houston, that is by far smaller than Swoop Pond. You have to land in the Swoop Pond is your goal is your goal for size. Yeah. That's impressive by itself, right? But what's around that landing area? Nothing. Uh there's not there's not a lot of grade outs, but our minimum size landing area that we train to is 100 by 100. So when we show up to a show, we actually have like a support manual that says we need at least this, this, and that. So 100 foot by 100 foot is our minimum that we ask for. Um, the whole idea behind our demo training being that if you aim small, you miss small. Mm-hmm. So we have a 10 foot by 10 foot target. In the middle of the 10 foot by 10 foot target, there's a dinner plate size thing. And the, the cultures during training is very much based around like you're always trying to land on the dinner plate. And... Uh, we have like a, actually have a scoring system. I don't know if you could uh, find a picture of a golden light target anywhere. But essentially, you have a orange circle in the middle. And then it's an X-shaped target or a lowercase T-shaped target. There's two black arms that are five foot long. That's the one region. And then there's two more orange arms outside of that that are also five foot long. So if you land on the dead center with both feet on the inside, you get a zero. If you land on the with one foot in the center and one foot on the black... Then you get a 0.5. Both feet in the black arm is a one. Both feet in the orange on the outside orange is a two. If you're like an arm's reach away from the target, that's a three. What if you have long arms? Well, like the the target arm. Okay. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> I tried. Uh, then you get a four if you're a little bit further away than that, and that's kind of like a discretion call on the person who's grading. And then if anywhere on God's green earth, and you fall down. Is a five. And that center target, do you know the size of that circle? I would I would call it probably a foot and a half by a foot, and a, like a foot and a half uh, diameter. Is this it right here? Kind of hard to see in that image. Yeah, so it's it's what's right in front of that jumper. Yeah, that T. Um, and really, I'm going to guess it's probably a similar size disc in the, in the center to classic sport accuracy target, which is about 39 centimeters. Um, I only know sport accuracy in the technical term of 39, 38 centimeters. Um, so it, it, I think that's about the same size that you're looking at. And that's a, that's a good tight landing area. It's a good tight, like you said, it's a dinner plate, a Frisbee. A lot of my friends, when they're practicing, will actually just throw a Frisbee out in the field and use not the big Frisbee, a small Frisbee, um, you know, not a tiny little bit, bitty one, but just a smaller one because that's more of a dinner plate size. It's a it's a good way to train uh, flying your parachute. Um, in the book, the can the parachute and his pilot by Brian Germain, he he has a really good quote in there. It says something to the effect of if if you're not accurate with your parachute, you're you're unpredictable and dangerous. You know, and everybody's going to have one offs. But if you're always training to be as precise as possible, then when you make a mistake, your mistake is small in comparison. So we aim to hit this one and a half. I'm I'm gonna call it one and a half foot That's diameter yeah, yeah. circle because I just you think about the average size of a foot it's it's quite the squeeze to get it in there but you have just a little bit of wiggle room. Title of your sex tape. 
<laughs> All right, so. There's so many. There's so many. <laughs> so, um, so like I said, basically, if you land anywhere on the target, you're going to get a two or better. What our performance measure for people going out into demonstrations is they have to have at least a two or better average. So kind of like golf. You know, if I land on the two arm on this jump, on my first jump of training, I got a two average. If I land in the dead center on the next one, that was a zero. So now I have a one average. And it goes on and on like that. But we get we train it all the time and we're we're jumping all day, every day, and we get pretty consistent. The goal does eventually become to have like under a point five average. And we just did a show in Dubuque, Iowa, that is just nothing but 100 by 100s. Like that's all you jump into. And one of them's like right on the side of the Mississippi River. So while the Discovery Green drop zone is covered, like the surrounding area is covered by a lot of stuff. I'm not, I don't want to like sound like complacent or anything because uh, that's definitely like a dangerous mindset to get into. But I feel like the margin for error for missing the target at the Discovery Green drop zone is just going to be landing far away from it. And maybe getting laughed at by my friends as opposed to if I didn't train the way that we did, I'd yeah. be landing in a tree somewhere or something or into a building. And it is. It's super tight, man. I When you and I spoke on the phone Wednesday and you said you're jumping Discovery Green, my mindset immediately like, whoa, I feel very comfortable if I needed to land there. Um, I think it's really silly that the Golden Knights have this. I want to land in this small circle all the time thing. And what I think is silly about that statement is that that's exceptional. Why doesn't every single skydiver behave that way? Because when you land off, and actually an old buddy of mine, an ex-Golden Knight guy, him and I were on an AFF uh, instructor training jump. We were training other instructors, and we landed off. And we landed off in an area that was 50 feet by 100 feet. That was the spot we had to land in. We had no other directions, no other places. We had power lines on one side. We were fucked. And both of us, three of us landed there, and two of us were like, we got this. We weren't stoked, but we're, we got the, the third guy landed, and he said, I peed myself the whole way down. I think that other gentleman and I landed in that tight spot because we always aim for accuracy. I'm always aiming for that small disc. I'm always aiming for that, that toe drop. I, I really like to think of accuracy as a beer bottle. I'm always aiming for a spot that I can put the ball of my feet in, and if I can't put the ball of my feet there, I missed, which... I miss a lot with a ball of a foot landing. But uh, I just, back to, I don't think it's silly the Golden Knights do that. I think it's silly that that's exceptional and other people don't. Man, it's a, uh, we really have a, a unique capability with all the training resources that we have to break down parts of the skydive. Um, I'm pretty sure if any jumper wanted to and had the resources available, they would probably just hammer out hop and pops until their canopy was good, and then get in the wind tunnel until their free fall was straight. Um, that would be nice. It would be, if uh, you know, if only. But, you know, even we're kind of limited, too, but that's definitely, like, uh, part of our attrition and our progression is you just you have to be accurate. You start off on the demo team, so all the guys that you see um, when skydivers run into the eight-way team and the VFS team, all of those guys got their start on the demonstration section. Let's pause right there real quick because you're, you're taking this in a good direction. I want to start with how do you get, how do you try out? Let's, how did you even become a Golden Knight? Okay, so the first thing you have to do, it, there is multiple layers of uh, things you have to go to, trials and tribulations. It's a really cool process. It, uh, it, uh, it, it sets us up for success with like a good group of people. 
But the first thing you have to do is get a packet through. All right, so you're in whatever army unit you're in, and you submit a packet, um, and your packet needs to have like a prerequisite of 100 uh, logged jumps, um, three references civilian, and three references military. I think you were actually one of my civilian references on my packet. I don't know if you got called or not. I'm guessing not because I made it. I was going to say, you yeah. still got on it? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember getting called about anybody getting in the Golden Knights. And I would have remembered that. Yeah. So I don't think so. Cool. So you got to submit the packet, and that has to be signed by a certain level of command. Um, I think back when I did it, it was just the battalion commander, which is, uh, for anybody army out there, it's it's your second commander. Because you'll have your company commander and then battalion commander. So, like, the next level of leadership has to sign that off. Um, you submit your packet. Hopefully it gets accepted by the team because then the team will go through the packets and they'll say, yeah, we, you know, we've looked through all this dude's records and we want him to come try out. Uh, and then you show up to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and you go through a two-month process that is way more rigorous than anybody ever expects it to be. And, and, and on top of actually going through it, I've actually run it for the past four years. I did one where I was just like a, an instructor. I did two years as the NCOYC, if you're familiar with that term, basically. Non-commission officer in charge. Yeah, I was just the guy in charge of it, made the game plan, executed it, and facilitated the, uh, the instructors and the students and making sure everything happened. And then last year, I was the assistant non-commissioned officer in charge of it. Um, and it's a unique process. Um, and, and what I, what we see a lot when people come through is that we try to, we try to pre-warn them like, Hey, I know that you guys are coming from civilian skydiving and this is going to be a lot more difficult than you think it's going to be. Cause right now all you hear is blah, 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 10 skydives a day. Like we're going to go out to the drop zone. We're going to do 10 skydives a day. Um, but you're packing for yourself. You're packing outside in the sun you're flat packing. Most people coming from skydiving because those those seven cell parachutes, flat packing is the way to go. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't very much a believer when I got into skydiving, but it's not bad to have flat packing in your skill set. There's a reason reserves are flat packed. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, you just develop a better understanding of the parachute. Like any new thing you can learn with it, you'll develop a new understanding. But people are always completely overwhelmed when they first get it, and it's uh. We, we basically run the training at the pace which they can safely handle it. So to them, it seems super fast, but we talk to the pilots and we time it out so that by the time they're finishing packing, the airplane's coming. The airplane that they're getting ready to get on is pulling in. They get their gear on. They do a pin check, run to the aircraft, and go conduct their next jump operation. So they'll do that 10 times a day. The first two weeks of the program... You're doing six jumps a day or six jump days a week doing 10 jumps a day. And it doesn't sound like it's that bad. I know a lot of skydivers out there do 10 jumps a day, but you're doing these jumps in between like nine and two o'clock. That's a busy day. It's a busy day. And you're just, I mean, you definitely feel like you're packing more than you're jumping. <laughs> but if, if, you, if you stick in with the process, you will find yourself able to focus on this basic maneuver jump out of the airplane, land on the target with little brain power. You know, and the, and the less brain power that you have to use on one portion of the skydive, the more brain power you get to use on all the other portions of your skydive. Because there's so many potential things. Demo has got to be one of the most chaotic forms of skydiving you can 
contend with. In my opinion, I have dabbled with competition a little bit, and I mean like barely scratched the surface on what that's all about. I definitely thought it was intense. Some demos are super easy. Sometimes you jump into an air show or something, and it's pretty basic. But sometimes it is just chaos. Everything's changing. You know, you take, you took off on the airplane with the intention of doing a jump from 12,500 feet. And next thing you know, a ceiling popped up out of nowhere. And now you're at 2,000 feet. You got 11 jumpers. You got 11 jumpers trying to make it into a 100 foot by 100 foot landing area while getting out of the airplane at 12,000 or at 2,000 feet. Um, you know, so now you have like the lowest possible ceiling, smallest possible landing area, but you have a group of people that have done thousands of land on the, the dinner plate size target. So if three of us have to go into a hundred foot by hundred foot at the same time, it's, it's relatively reflexive at that point. We can all bring it in with our incels touching. One of, uh, I've done a lot of 20 jump days. I've done a lot of 10 jump in the time frame you're talking about kind of days. And there's a huge advantage of it. it. It's definitely wear and tear, but you don't have any time for distractions. My wife yelled at me this morning, which is every morning for me. I deserve it. Um, I'm having this stress of my work life. I'm having this problem with my car, whatever it is. Those you completely become disconnected and submerse or immerse yourself into that process. Um, how many people will go through people are going through this process you're talking about right now they're still not making the team yet they're trying out or they've made the team now this, this, yeah this is the tryout process okay so that's the first two weeks of tryouts um and then after that it's kind of weather dependent we start we have some basic free fall maneuvers that we do in our air shows um so we'll start training them on the basics of those and it, it's nothing too difficult uh, i think maybe the only one that skydivers would look at and raise an eyebrow too is the diamond track maneuver. Mm-hmm. You know Dana Bowman. Yeah, yeah. Who's actually a, a Dallas local nowadays? I've actually done a jump with him on Team Fast Tracks. So I mean, yeah, incidents like that have kind of earned it a, a a sort of a stigma. But if conducted properly, it's not really that bad. It's it's more of an illusion than it is anything. Not nearly as close to each other as it looks from the ground. No, essentially, the best way I can describe it is if I'm tracking. Let's just talk about, let's just, like imagine we're at an air show and me and you are tracking down the runway and then we do 180s and we track back down the runway right at each other. Yeah. I could be a hundred feet horizontal separation and just a little bit above you. But if I imagine that I have a string kind of tied to this from my eyeballs to the center of the crowd and as I see you a hundred feet away from me, I try to take your body and cut that string as we cross to the crowd, it creates the illusion that we almost hit each other, even if we're hundreds of feet away from each other. Mm -hmm. Now, the further away you get, obviously the more precise that point becomes to try to make uh, your partner cross out the crowd. So what we'll actually do the majority of the time is just use the target. We'll try to make the target X out. Okay. Uh, So anyways, we'll start training them on the basic free fall maneuvers for the show and then we'll move into what we, we call mass formations, which is a kind of a playoff of a, a military term for jump operations, a mass exit, being a static line jump where everybody's just basically bailing out of the back end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we call it a mass exit. It's really just like a 10-way. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do like a little bit of that. And then once we have our crop of students, we'll start training for graduation. So in the formations, one of them is, is, is the diamond. And 
And first of all, we mentioned Dana's name. Uh, him and another jumper did the cross, and they actually collided. He lost both his legs. And if I remember right, is not only the first double amputee military skydiver, but the first double amputee active duty military guy. And I can't remember that for sure. Maybe Justin can look up uh, history on Dana Bowman. It, it, it's very his history is very accessible. He's a very well known guy who now jumps. You mentioned with Team Fast Tracks, who I respect. I, I've known Team Fast Tracks. I've actually uh, done a lot of video for their uh, tandem team once upon a time. I've done a lot of work. I actually packed for their competition team. Um, they claim to be America's premier skydiving team, and with respect to them. They are not America's premier skydiving team. They do a phenomenal job on demos. I have a lot of respect for what they do. The fucking Golden Knights are America's premier skydiving team. Eight-way team, four-way team, VFS team, once upon a time a swoop team, demo team, tandem team. You guys are comprehensive. So respect to Golden to, 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 to Fast Tracks, but you guys really are the cat's meow. Well, I mean, I definitely appreciate that, um, yeah. and I'm sure any Golden Knight listening does too. I uh, definitely have nothing but love for Team Fast Tracks. Good dude. If you guys are out there listening, I've actually I did a demo with Fast Tracks um, back in 2015. I don't know; it's probably, it may have even be lost in the the skydiving folklore, so to speak, nowadays. But we had a <laughs> we had a teammate pass away at an air show in Chicago, um, and he was he was from Ohio, mm-hmm. and our team went into a shutdown, and I actually. Fast Tracks was doing a demo into his funeral, and I got invited to go along with him, and that's when I actually did a jump with Dana Bowman on that one, and John Hart was team leading it. David Hart was on that jump. And that was a really cool experience. I really liked the way they operate, and in fact, it's pretty similar to how we do business. For sure. It's... uh, yeah, they're a good team. I really have a lot of respect for Team Fast Tracks. Yeah, I mean, if you look up their creed, if you look up what their motto is, if you look at how he operates the team, um, definitely different than my style and my personality, which there's zero wrong. As a matter of fact, his version is probably a lot more respectful to life than mine is. So that that is the difference is he's got a lot more um, structure and a lot more respect. Just the, he, he has a high demand for respectful behavior. And there's nothing wrong with that. You got to respect it. Um, demos is one of those things. If you do the most epic demo ever, you're going to be the most talked about thing for like two or three days. Mm-hmm. If you do the worst demo ever, <laughs> you're going to be known for the rest of your life. So you have to, there's a really big level of respect you have to approach it to. And that's, I mean, uh, Fast Tracks runs a tryout process. I I mean, I've never gone through it um, or or seen it, but... There's there's a method behind the madness, you know, and, and you're definitely looking for people who can, for one thing, draw the line for themselves. You know, you you want people in demonstration to be able to push through their limits and but just a little bit past it, because people who don't have any respect for what they're doing are bound to make a gigantic mistake. And I think skydivers in general is is the biggest battle we're all facing. I mean, I don't. I don't know you. I don't skydive with you that much any day, but I'm willing to bet you go through it too. It's complacency. Yes, sir. You you go you go through these phases where you're just you're you're you start killing it. You know, you're just having like good jumps left and right, and you stop worrying about skydives because you've been doing so good. And most senior skydivers would tell you that's when you are at your most dangerous point in your career. And then and uh, you know people have been around a while. You go through these cycles. And eventually you'll find yourself on jumps being terrified for no reason. You're like, this is a pretty standard jump, you know? 
I'm just doing like a a little uh, eight way or something into a big old drop zone, and man, I am just pinging, and that's when you're at your safest. So, I really feel like uh, absolutely for me it has been true the complacency issue, but at this point in my career, it's it's been a very long time. And I think I'm, I'm blessed because in my job, I preach and promote safety. In my job, I'm constantly a face and a representative safety. So be, because I am in that safety position and every day I'm telling you complacency kills. Every day I'm teaching you how to be safer, how to think smarter and how to be smarter. It makes me constantly stay aware. So, I mean, I no jump is just another jump to me. Every, you know, I, I'm in the jump. I'm in the plane dirt diving, a skydive that I've done a hundred times. And when I dirt dive it, uh, there's always, there's commonly been a thought like, why am I dirt diving this? I know this jump better than anybody probably could because I do it for a living because not doing it is when I become complacent, not thinking this way. Um, this, uh, this week yesterday, I did some front rides on a tandem. Instructor needed some recurrency training, just, just needed to do a few jumps with me. He had a bunch of experience. As I step on the boarding ladder to get in the plane, I immediately grab my handle one last time and I giggled because I am so, I am so attentive to that process. I grab my handle and immediately from there start to reach for my no my handle's not there. I can't reach for my cutaway. Oh yeah, I'm wearing a tandem harness. I'm a stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I have to reach back. Damn You've been there. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a I am blessed, and I really think you're probably in the same boat. Complacency has not been something you've seen as much lately in your life. Because how much do you preach it, and how much do you pre- well preach against complacency? Uh, quite a bit. I mean, I'm I it is my biggest struggle, but I've been also fortunate to like I, I in times when like complacency was becoming a thing, um, I was always able to like catch it before the other person was, you know. So I see somebody else getting complacent, and then it's always been like served as a reminder to me. As that until I see, I'm sure that was probably one of your least complacent times in life because your job mandated you be aware of other people's complacency. Yes, and I would love other skydivers to take that example, and not that you're going to be that officer in charge or, or in, a non-commissioned officer in charge. Not that you're going to be the examiner running a course, but it doesn't mean you can't take that mentality. We are all in charge of our brother's safety. Technically, we're not, but in all good-hearted morality, I am. I, if I catch you looking at my chest strap in the plane, thank you. If you have five jumps and you tell me you see something wrong with my gear, thank you. Even if you're wrong, at least you're fucking looking, man. I am my brother's keeper. I hate that statement. I'm not my brother's keeper. And to a point in life, I'm not. You're drunk. You fucked up. I'm not your keeper. Gotcha. But when it comes to skydiving... Man, if I behave in the way that I'm my brother's keeper, I rarely become complacent because I'm so aware of safety issues. And I'm not my brother's keeper for their safety. I'm my brother's keeper for my safety and theirs. Yeah, for all of our safety. We definitely have to look out for each other. The best skydivers in the game have made uh, gearing up issues. I mean, it happens to everyone 100 percent, and it is that is yeah, i mean i really like uh the way our airplanes are set up we all we have like bench seat we're almost sitting kind of like me and you are right now but there's you know five guys on that side and five guys on this side and we sit right across from each other so when we're taxiing and whatnot i have nothing better to do but look at my buddy's gear mm-hmm. you know and for us it's a little bit of a game You're like yo where's your hook knife at yeah uh, uh yeah just kind of like just trying to just trying to find stuff 
we, we, we make it into a game where we kind of tease each other, but it does, it keeps you with an eye to try to find stuff. So you've uh, the, like an unzipped side pocket. Yeah, that's the dangerous. Things. You know, an unzipped side pocket. If you jump out of the airplane with that, it'll inflate with air. It could put you in a flat spin or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that explains everything. I did those front rides yesterday, and I had an unzipped swoop short pocket, and the guy couldn't control me. <laughs> that was what it was. My was, pocket was inflated with air. Um, so we were talking about some of the formation things you guys do for basic training. We we talked a little bit about the cross is with the, the diamond, the tracking diamond. What other things are you are are you guys doing in free fall for the team? So the four basic maneuvers that we do on our team is the baton pass, cutaway, diamond track, diamond formation. The baton pass is a it's a seemingly basic maneuver. Um, two jumpers will jump out of the aircraft, fly wingtips of the aircraft apart, turn and face each other, and they'll kind of hold that position until about 9,000 feet, and then they'll close in. They'll take a right arm to right arm grip, and then they'll just spin the, the two-way down to break off, and they'll usually do like a 3,500 to 2,500 foot. Commonly smoke on your feet for this one? Co- yeah, all the maneuvers have smoke on your feet. So now we see that barber pole effect. Exactly. That's exactly what we call it, barber poles. Okay. Yeah, and the, the performance measure there is to get six 180s in, you know, six barber pulls. Okay. That's what makes that. And then the, the cutaway is actually something we don't train people going through assessment and selection on. That's after you've made the team and then gone through a winter training with the team in Florida. The last thing we train on is the cutaway. Um, it's this unique container um, that, as I understand it, I might not be factual in what I'm saying right here. But I think Talon only lets us use them, and it's a tertiary system. It's got three parachutes in it, two main parachutes and one reserve. A belly mounted reserve? No, they're all. Back it's mounted. all back. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So you've got one pilot chute that you reach back and you throw like normal, and then the second one has an eye patch cover, so that so the the first pilot chute hacky has a Teflon cable system on it with an eye patch that covers the second main parachute. That way you can't throw them out of order. So you throw the first one and that immediately opens up the the doorway to get to the second one. And then once that first one comes out, it's just on two quick releases at the shoulder right by the three ring. Instead of it being like a Teflon cable going through that that Mm -hmm. rope or the uh, the cloth loop, it is just a straight pin, kind of like a reserve. And you just, you flick one, literally just a little finger uh, flick will do it. And you just, Super fun. It is like the funnest skydive you will ever do in your life if you ever get a chance to do one. Uh, and you, We'll ride that malfunction for about 10 seconds. Then we'll release the second side, deploy the main parachute about five seconds later. I, um, I'm doing a lot of intentional cutaways right now. Folks listening to the show know our stories, and we're doing a MARD development and MARD testing for Velocity Sports Equipment and nice. Infinity Rigs. So jumping a Tersh, but we have the belly-mounted reserve. And at the, we, we have all these tests we have to do for the FAA. But when the tests are done, I'm doing one more jump. And guess what I'm doing on that jump with the risers? Disconnecting one? I am going to grab one cable, the non-RSL cable. I'm actually going to have both RSL disconnected so I can get free and clear. I'm going to just pull the one cable out, so disconnect one and go for a little bit of a ride. It, uh, it gets going. Yeah. It's, uh, I've seen video of it, and uh, I'm sure it's going to get hairy. But do it high enough. Do it fun. You know, be ready for it. Hairy being exciting, you know, and... I've got three parachutes. Reserves open pretty consistently, pretty reliably. Yeah. I mean, they're packed well. 
It's a well well designed system. Yeah. So how many uh, intentional cutaways have you done? Uh, probably in the ballpark of about thirty five. Okay. No malfunctions on the. No, no true malfunction. So to me, if you're jumping a tersh, a true malfunction means you used the the third parachute. Correct. Yeah, I've never had to use the reserve parachute. I'm 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 pretty well in line with the industry standard. I'm a little. I'm about three thousand four hundred jumps right now, and I'm about three cutaways, like three legit emergency procedures. Keep that mic closer to you. Um. So. I actually think those terms have changed. So for many, many okay. years, when I started skydiving, they said one in every three thousand, one in every one thousand jumps will end in, in a cutaway. And our parachutes are opening much more reliably today. Our systems are much more reliable. We are opening much higher as a community, so we don't have to cut away as soon. A lot of the old school four way guys opened at two grand. You pitch, you cut away. You have no chance to fix anything. Where man, if I'm pitching at three five, that's my lowest. I prefer to pitch at altitude. If you go on a skydive with me, like, yo, bro, do you mind if we pitch a four grand? I'm like, yeah, no, dude, I'm great with that. Four grand is awesome. You want you want to pitch a four or five? I'm like, yeah, no, no, I'll take that too. So I, I just see hearing the numbers over the years, I think 1,500 to 2,000 is becoming a more real number. I have no statistics to back that up. Um, I'm at 8,503, 8,500 with three cutaways, like you, three intense, three three needed cutaways. The rest were for fun. So, um, So... The last thing you said is freefall diamond. You said I, I can't remember what you were saying. You, uh, the tracking diamond, the barber pole, uh, the intentional cutaway, and what was the fourth formation? The diamond formation. Diamond formation. And what is that one? So that's four jumpers. Um, so the it, it's very similar to Jets doing like the delta diamond formation. Uh-huh. I, I believe that's what it's modeled after. Uh, so the first guy will get out kind of in a longer spot. And he'll jump out, turn around, face the target. Two other guys will whoosh, whoosh, jump out, and they become the wings. And we form a wide diamond uh, based off of that guy who's just facing the target. And then the fourth guy gets out, and it's like in a stair-step pattern. So you got one guy down, faced off with the target. The the two wing flyers are uh, about a 100 foot above them and wingtip length off to the side of them. And then the slot flyer will be well above them. And we fly that till 9,000 feet, and then everybody closes in. And that guy who's facing the target, the reason he gets out in a longer spot is he's doing forward movement the whole time. So then we take this wide diamond, we fly it into a tight diamond, and then at the bottom, we call it a bomb burst, but uh, for skydiving folks, it's essentially just a track off. Okay. That is time to be, everything's time to be uh, sequential. It's not the word I'm looking for. Every, so we do like two waves. So the team leader's flying away. The team leader usually leads the diamond. He does one wave, and everybody does their turn. Like the wing guys do a 90-degree turn. Mm-hmm. The, the tail guy does a 180-degree turn. And then on the next wave, we all track. And then we, instead of, we all, so when you're tracking, we also have a hip-mounted hit mount, hit altimeter that we use in addition to a wrist-mounted one. So when you're tracking, you're kind of watching the team leader and your altitude. And when the team leader pitches, you pitch. That way, we all have simultaneous deployments. And you're thinking staged break off, I think, is the word you were looking for. That'd be a good word for it. Yeah, stage, turn, wait, track. Um, do you guys use any comms in any of your events? No, just a lot of dirt diving. I mean, it is that when you're in tryouts and you're not jumping, you're dirt diving. You just dirt dive, dirt dive, dirt dive. I mean, it's the, I mean, I, I'm sure you're probably on par with this. I think the best thing you can do, and you were even talking about it earlier 
for your skydiving career is if you're not skydiving, you should be mentally skydiving. Yeah. Practice on the ground is free. A skydive costs a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Visualizing don't cost you a thing. Picture yourself there and you'll get there. And your brain, yeah, your brain processes the same thing. If you close your eyes and pretend you're on a skydive, your brain thinks you're on a skydive. Yeah. It's it's a look up the power of visualization and and man, one of these days I actually have some studies and reports. I do a lot of reading and studying off to the side. And I'll have to get it. That's in my. Uh, it's next to my bed. There's. I'm reading some different studies and reports on visualization and the power of visualization in sports psychology and coaching, and what they've proven. And people who say visualization doesn't work, what the hell's a wet dream? And I'm not trying to be silly, but straight up, man, you didn't really just have sex, but you did. Visualization, man, that imagination, that power of that process is absolutely real. If you're not dirt diving visually, if you're not visualizing your sky, if you're not picturing what you're doing, you know, you're not doing your best. Yep. Pays. So these are all the things that you guys are doing just to try out as a golden knight. Correct. Yeah. It's about a two month process. And I'd say throughout that two months, the average candidate makes about 200 jumps. And now you guys, how, how many people typically try out and then how many people make it? The last statistic that I heard when somebody bothered to crunch the numbers was 48%. We have about 48% success rate of who comes through and who makes it. That's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, there's a pretty natural level of attrition because skydiving is kind of hard to get into uh, nowadays as an enlisted soldier in the Army. Um, it is skydiving, to be fair, it's just kind of a pricey <clears throat> habit. It's kind of a pricey habit, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people that we get that make it to us are already very dedicated to skydiving. Okay. Back in the day, um, army bases everywhere had free fall parachute clubs and you could go learn to skydive for free. Generally speaking, there was probably some former golden knight who was like the drop zone mentor that was going to be helping you learn. And for a lot of people, that was their goal. So the golden knights every year would get about 200 packets They'd have to sort through their 200 packets to take about 30 people. And out of those 30 people, about six would make it. Nowadays, we get about 18 people trying out and about six to eight will make it. How many packets do you get these days? Um, Probably in like 22, 25 range. So a lot more, as you mentioned, limited people. Just It's not a cheap sport, man. Yeah. A lot of my friends uh, think, you know, when I was a very young jumper, uh, somebody said I looked like a skydiver to them, and they were on the drop zone with a bunch of other people, and it's because I was the guy dressed in street clothes where the professional skydivers were all wearing really nice outfits. And everybody in the plane, including me, laughed because I was like, dude, I got like 30, 80, or 30 40 jumps. Everybody else on the plane are professionals. And, and we one of the guys asked, why do you think he looks like the, the, the real skydiver? Because look at the way he's dressed. The rest of you guys look like you have too much money, like you shouldn't be here. He looks like the one who can barely afford to live life. He looks like a skydiving bum. And we laugh because professionally, man, we eat ramen. We are skydiving bums. But sport-wise, it's, dude, how many friends do I have who are doctors, lawyers, who have high-paying jobs? Because 25 bucks, 28 bucks a jump ain't, ain't, ain't uh, expensive, but do 10 jumps in a weekend. Do that twice a month. Do that more often than that. It gets expensive quick. So now you guys are down to the final people who make the team. And you say now, and now we're going to go back. I interrupted you to you start on the demo team. Yeah, so you start on the, the demonstration section as everybody's launching point. 
um, which I think is a really cool aspect of our team. Everybody, any any competitor that you see or any tandem instructor on the tandem section you see made their roots in this most basic component of skydiving, landing accurately. You know, and it's something that everybody carries out to the rest of their their skydiving career. Like, no matter what you're doing, you don't get so caught up in trying to turn points doing RW that you forget about landing safely. It is is literally the most important thing you do on any jump. So that's a big point of pride for me uh, within the team that I really like. Um, it's, just, it's cool. And, and every time that I get to do any kind of training, like every once in a while, the eight-way team, they'll put on an eight-way training camp and they'll mm-hmm. just you know teach us whatever they can. And every time I talk to those guys, I learn some cool new little trick about demo. You know, There's just so much knowledge running through the team. And back to back to because they've all been where you're at right now. Correct. Now, how long have you been on the demo team? This is my seventh year on the demo team. And traditionally, that's a long career on the demo team? It's pretty long. It's up there. Um, I was actually supposed to go to the tandem team um, this year, but then a whole bunch of things got rearranged on the team, and I ended up staying on demo for another year. But I would, demo's a really fun job. Um, now, like, Everybody's got aspirations to do things. Competition's obviously like a really great aspiration. You know, competition sure. just breeds excellence in skydiving. It's really cool to see it. And the tandem instruction kind of like breeds our, our the instruction, the instructional route that some people want to go. Um, demo is, man, it, it's work. It's really long days, you know. I was up at 5 o'clock this morning for my first interview, followed by a whole bunch of driving around from airport to airport. I'm here now doing this. I'll wake up early tomorrow morning and I'm going to jump into the space center and, uh, and it is just cool. You know, you're really, you really just kind of live in the skydiving dream. You get to travel to somewhere else, check out a new drop zone. What it does for your perception skills in skydiving is amazing because you're always, okay, you, you go to a new drop zone and you're taking a look at obstacles. Okay. I got trees. I got light poles. They're about this high. My landing area is about this big. My takeoff airport's this much higher than my landing area. Uh, you know, you just think, think, think. And, and every jump's a bit of a challenge, and I really enjoy that. Really, you guys are the rock star of the Golden Knight team because the average skydiver meets the average Golden Knight competition jumper, and they're like, cool. But it, it doesn't go much beyond that thought process. The tandem team gets some cool exposure because they get to take some really cool high-profile people on tandems. But when you guys land, Wuffos respond to skydiving demo jumps bigger than anybody else. And it's amazing because I've done jumps with a 107 uh, stiletto into a baseball field. And, you know, to you and I, that's impressive. The swoop I laid down and popped up and stomped on the pitcher's mound. I mean, that's impressive. It is, yeah. And then here comes this dude under this tugboat of a 280 <laughs> and just sinks it in and sets down super softly. And who got the bigger cheer? It probably the, yeah, we run into that a lot too. The tugboat guy got it. Yeah, we do swooping into our demos sometimes. And uh, if your swoop doesn't land standing up on target, you're not nearly as impressive as the guy with the big parachute landing on target. And even if you do stand up, you almost wreck because you came in so fast. The guy who came in slow was so impressive. And you guys end up getting to sign autographs, shake hands, high five the kids. You guys get to be the rock star. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's more of a question than a statement. Yeah, so that's pretty much where uh, where we make our money. Is It's not so much like signing autographs, but it, it is more in like the shaking hands and just mm-hmm. getting to know people. You show up to places and 
some you meet a lot of people who've never even met a soldier before. They've they they've obviously never met a skydiver and they never met a soldier. So I mean you're getting to to be the face of the sport and be the face of the army. Talk to them what it's all about. You'd be surprised in today's age, like Call of Duty is like the face <laughs> of the army for a lot of people. They think that's all it is. That's all they see. Yeah. What's really cool about the event that we're doing this weekend, I was thinking about it earlier. So we have three different army entities there that really stand out to me. There's probably more that I'm not seeing behind the, the, the scenes. But we have the army band from the 1st Cavalry Division. They're playing music. Um, helping us out with the the ceremonial stuff. You got the Army Golden Knights jumping in, parachuting. Like those are both jobs in the Army. You also have a Lieutenant Colonel from the Army that's about to go out to space. So you got like these three really cool job opportunities: huh. music, parachuting, astronaut. But the average person that you meet at an air show, Call of Duty, Band of Brothers. You know, yeah, yeah, shooting people. That that's, I mean, the, the army has a really awesome wide variety, and it's and it's really cool to share that with people. Well, isn't that one of the biggest jobs of the Golden Knights? Is you guys are recruiters, said and done. Um, we're we're more of a support system to recruiters. We're definitely yeah. aligned with the United States Army Recruiting Command, uh, but none of us. Well, the majority of us haven't been through recruiting school, but that is, we definitely want to help the recruiters out because yeah. right now, recruiting mission is it's. Uh, like last year, they didn't make their mission. Like they didn't put as many people in the army as they needed to. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, man, it's crazy what people are missing out on when uh, when you talk about army opportunities. The uh, the force is actually at like one of its lowest since the draft got re- uh, repealed. Like the draft got repealed, the army downsized. They beefed the recruiting efforts up and we went through all these different changes in America and the strength of the force got really strong. And now we're starting to see a decline in it again. And a lot of it's because just misunderstanding and, you know, just like we're talking about right now, they basically know what they see in video games and they're like, well, it's cool to do in a video game, but I don't want to just do that in real life. Ignoring all the other possibilities, you know, you can be working on medical equipment. There's computers, computer science, there's aviation, Helicopter pilots. Somebody's got to fly Fat Albert. Fat Albert is still y'all's plane, isn't it? That is a Blue Angel aircraft. Blue Angel. Dang, I'm in the wrong government. I'm in the wrong <laughs> branch. I'm in the wrong branch of armed forces. Oh, I, the whole time I kept thinking, like, what is y'all's plane? Fat Albert actually just got retired. Did it? Yep. That's sad. Yeah. That makes me super sad. Um, but there's so many opportunities in the army that are above and beyond just the Golden Knight, or just beyond the the, the soldier part. And the Golden Knights is one of them. I had I had I had I have a buddy who years ago and man I early on in my skydiving career not not my sport jumping but my career I was around a lot of Debbie Downers a lot of you can't do that you can't do that and so I was really raised in the professional part of skydiving with with holding people back you know you see the new jumper you hold them down you hold them down and you're holding them down for his own good where today I'm very different. You lift them up because, like, you want to do this. You want to become a Golden Knight. This is how you're going to do it, brother. And back in those days, I just did not think my buddy Ryan Ray, and I don't know if you know Ryan. Ryan Ray? I know Ryan, yeah. Yeah, I know Ryan. Ray Ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Ryan Ray and I. What up, Ray Ray? Yeah, uh, him and I have uh, skydived t- plenty of times together, hung out together, partied together, had good times together. I've slept on the living room uh, floor of his living room on many occasions. Um, we've eaten shitloads of pizzas together and Ryan wanted to become a golden knight one day. And, uh, I would apologize if I saw him today. I've actually had a phone conversation with him once since and said, man, I was wrong. 
Um, and part of it was my leadership. The people around me were like teaching us to push people down. But man, if you wanted to join the army and become a golden knight, it's a very doable task. I mean, you made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Davis made it. <laughs> yeah, and he's not even good looking. Matt? Matt's a good looking feller, man. That that rugged chin. It's all perspective, I guess. <laughs> Matt, Matt, he's short, but other than that, he's a good looking fella. Uh, I was going to talk about him a little bit. He's actually, I thought it was really cool. He started doing a podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, Something like Champion, Champion. A Champion's Journey. Yes. I think he's only two episodes in right now. And then, yeah, I mean, I saw that you were doing one. Figured at some point in time he'd come up. <laughs> um, but the, the road to becoming a Golden Knight, man, you're definitely right. And that is, it's a hard struggle. A lot of times we are just trying to look out for the, uh, the welfare of the younger jumper. Mm-hmm. Like, you just got a younger jumper and, and, you know, I don't know, you're almost trying to protect them from becoming yourself or something because you almost got hurt or you did get hurt and... And you see the mindsets that lead to it. Um, but, yeah, man, the Golden Knights is a very accomplishable task. When I saw them as a kid, I thought they were superheroes. I, I thought they were so talented that there was no way that I would ever do that. You know, it was like the farthest thing from my mind. I didn't start realizing that I could probably do it until I was learning to skydive at Skydive Spaceland. You know, Jason Hyder teaching me how to do a track. Now, my tracking was not spectacular. <laughs> But I was moving horizontally-ish across the sky. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that's what they did. When I saw the thing, when I was a kid, they flew away from each other. That's how they did it. Like, I'm doing that. You know, several thousand jumps later, I realized that I did and still do struggle with efficient tracking. You know, I think that'll forever be every skydiver's like goal to get even better at. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm... Uh, no, I hope, myself. I, I hope every skydiver's goal is that. I don't think it's every skydiver's goal. Every thought-out skydiver's goal is. It should be. Just yeah. like landing accuracy, accurately. Yes. Yeah, every it, jump. If you're just tracking and landing. Yeah, sometimes you get really hyped up on a jump, you know, at the end of it. Because uh, if, especially if you're planning your break-offs to be based around the lowest that you want to pull. When it's time to go, you just go. You know, you might glance left or right and be like, okay, that guy's taking that angle. That guy's taking that angle. I'm taking this angle. Um, but if you're on a jump with a little bit slight, slightly higher of a pull, you should just take a look at how far away you're actually getting from somebody. Cause it's not a lot unless you're actually trying to make your body longer, trying to get into an efficient tracking position. Some people just bust a 180 and start dive bombing. A lot of people do yes. if, if they're not paying attention to it. Tons. Yeah. I always try to like look look between my legs basically and try to have continue to have more altitude than everyone else and get further and further away while while I'm keeping that flat track momentum. That's a yeah, that's a super good technique. My team leader does that. He he does like the the head down, like puts his head down and he cups so much air. It's like by the time you realize that he's using that trick and you're not, you're a way you're never going to catch up with him. You're not going to see him. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, "Oh no, I'm low and I dang it, I need to do better about that one next time." I always like to say track break off and track away from people like you're pissed off at them like i fucking hate you man i never want to see you again in in my job as an aff examiner it's very common not very common as an examiner i am getting thrown out people are opening my parachute for me between 4,000 and 4,500 feet and then the people below me are pulling at 2,500 feet on the same skydive so now here i am under parachute watching the group behind me break off 
And it is so interesting to watch because you said it. Most jumpers are mag- are tracking for max speed. And when they think max speed, they're going the fastest. But when you're going the fastest, you're probably at a vertical angle, not horizontal and flat. You really want to grab as much air as you can, cupping and grabbing with that chest, using that chin. And, and be really careful with the advice both of you guys talked about. As a younger jumper, I want you to make sure you're locked onto a heading, looking ahead of you. These guys didn't mention that, but I bet money they do it. They verify their heading. They're locked in on their heading. And then from there, I'll do the same thing. I'll put my chin straight down on my sternum. I don't want to see where my guys are behind me. Number one, it really maxes that cup with my upper body. Number two, I can see all my homeboys in my group by doing this. I'm chin to my chest, and I'm scanning the guy directly behind me, 180. I know where he's going. I can scan to my left and my right, still keeping my chin tucked, and see where those guys are going to see if I need to crack my heading, and then bring my head back up and clear my airspace in front of me as I finish my track. And I'm commonly the highest person on the track, unless I'm jumping with a guy named Dalton Swan who looks like a toothpick and can out-track everybody in the world. <laughs> you know, he's just that guy who is built to track. I, I, I wonder if he needs a parachute to land. Yeah, I did a track and dive with him a few years ago. You know ago. Dalton? Yeah, I, I did like a, a one or two jumps with him, and he led a tracking dive. And I remember he was kind of like like lazily doing it to help everybody in the group out. And then at the end of it, he's like, all right, I'm going. And he just punched it. And man, it was. You felt like a wimp. It was, yeah, yeah. You're just like gas, like, I can't, dude. Get, yeah. Cut me some slack. You're in the middle of the tracking dive going, like, I'm crushing it, dude. I'm a monster. <laughs> there went Dalton. Where'd he go? You son of a. Yeah, he's, he's a good flyer. Yeah. I am not the best tracker by any means, but for my body shape and size, I, I do just fine. I am. Um, One of the problems I have is any tracking jumps I go on anymore is everybody tracks so steep. And I'm not talking angle jumps. I'm talking a legit tracking dive that I struggle to stay with the group because I'm floating too much sometimes. I'm like, uh. And uh, Stephen Boyd, I think you know Stephen. We were on a tracking jump together. He's like, hey, bro, next time you have a problem with that, this is a trick you can use to sink out on tracking jumps because – I mean, you've got the speed, and, and if you back off, you're you're not going to be with everything. It's you know how to flat track. So digging knees, and really he introduced me into to elementary angles is what he did. So it, it's a track like your life depends on it because it does. It, yeah, it does for sure. Yeah. Uh, there was a gal who jumped with us, Melissa Brown, uh, who oddly enough is a videographer for a four-way team, but I watch her do four-way jumps when she's not training as a video person. And she's the best tracker on her group. Like, there's been multiple jumps. She's been behind me. She's a school teacher, so weekday she's off right now just fun jumping. And the first time I saw her in her group behind me, I watched her open, watched what parachute it was, landed and found that parachute because I wanted to find out who that was because I was so impressed with her track. And then after that, every time I see somebody track, I'm like, who the fuck is Oh, that's Melissa. I should have known. She just she yeah we it. were on a four way team together and she would regularly be the the furthest one apart from everybody she hated you guys man yeah <laughs> below break off you have no friends so you eventually were going to go to the tandem team that's kind of where we were going to for a moment there um, is is your goal to move on from the demo team eventually yeah I kind of just want to I mean just try some new uh, career stuff out. Uh, being on the demo team it has been awesome, and it, I mean, I'll continue to do it as long as they want me to. It's it really is an honor and a privilege. Uh, tandems are just something new, and I really, man. So doing a demo is cool because you're kind of like showcasing to the American public and whatever other people are watching, like what the army offers. You know, like we we train this super hard, and 
Like I, one of the pinnacles, one of the things I'm most proud of that we can do on the Golden Knights is put 10 people out of an aircraft from 2,000 feet and have everybody land on the 10 foot by 10 foot target, everybody taking their own approach. It's like the coolest performance measure we have. I don't know if everybody else sees that as cool as we do, but like if you watch people exit an aircraft from 2,000 feet, you can see the outline of their body. It looks really cool. And that's always been fun to showcase. But when you do a tandem, you get to share it. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to share this whole experience with people. And that is cool. And, and it like it opens up this whole new level of intraperson, intrapersonal skills for mm-hmm. people. You know, you kind of got to take a read on somebody like uh, like this person. They need jokes and stuff. And that, that'll loosen them up. And like this person, if I tell another joke, they're going to like no go the jump or something, you know. So you got to, I don't know, I, I just really enjoyed that. And instructing's pretty cool. I took my coach course with you shortly afterwards. I maybe did, I maybe did like 40, 50 coach jumps for random drop zones out in West Texas. And uh, yeah, West Texas and New Mexico that year. And then I, I didn't do much coaching other than coaching new jumpers until I went and got my tandem rating. Where did you get your tandem? Like, where were you at? Did you? Was it was a civilian? Was it military? It was with a, an examiner on our team, okay. uh, Rich Sloan. Don't know the name, but okay. Yeah, he's a, he runs a lot of the the tandem rating courses for our team. So he was my tandem examiner, and I mean he was a he was a really good instructor too. You know, the uh, the old droglist jumps always a that's a fun one. I got one yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I have a dislocated shoulder. Well, it's not dislocated. I have a repaired shoulder for dislocation. So one arm goes up and the other one doesn't. So on droglish jumps, if I hold my arms out, we it's a struggle because the left arm will not go any higher. The right arm naturally goes higher because the wind pushes it there. And on droglish, we're, we're, we're pushing pretty good speeds. Um, and so I, I either make it a complete struggle for the tandem instructor to fly because he's fighting me with a built-in turn the entire time or I have to bring my arms directly in front of me the whole time. I traditionally bring my arms directly in front of me and point my elbows straight down to max out. I just like, man, if we're going to go fast, we might as well go fast. (laughs) So I I arch my ace off and I put those elbows down to go as fast as we can. I didn't look at the numbers yet, but I want to say tomorrow, uh, yesterday we pushed 180 plus close to 180 to 200. Um, and last time in in this guy's original training doing a drugless tandem, we did get a measurement of 200. So, um, and I know I was pushing much harder on his front than his last examiner was because I like to go fast. I'm Ricky Bobby. You like pushing hard on front. Mm-hmm. So how many tandems have you gotten over time? Not many. No. I got my tandem rating last year, and I'm only at 66 right now. So you got it kind of with the goal of the Golden Knights? Yeah, so we have like a like a, you have to have so many jumps to take so many certain levels of tandems is how we classify them. Uh, so like a class three tandem would be just like a local center of influence. Okay. Like a uh, a school teacher, or a principal, or just somebody who's like a an active member in their community. Level two is kind of like a a like a celebrity that if so like a, so okay, I'll just start with level one. Level one, the best way I can describe it is if you can type in the first three letters of their names into Google, <laughs> and their name comes up, that's a level one tandem. <laughs> and then level two is like you got to type in their first name and a little bit of their last name, and they pop up. That's level two. And then level three, you might have to type in their name and then the city that they're from, and they should pop up. Um, it's so funny that Google has become a standard of how we rank people. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even be saying that. Um, but yeah, that's how we... Uh, that's so so to take the level three people you have to have a hundred so your first hundred jumps are either we're taking up jumpers 
tandem instructors or active duty people. So I just really, I got after as hard as I could with active duty people, but I actually had a uh, shoulder surgery myself at the end of last year. What'd you have? So um, it was actually just bursitis. Okay. That was, I got super fortunate when they went in there, my rotator cuff was like in order and they just took the bursa sac out. So a surgical decompression and you know, I'm still good as new now to fuck with man. They are, they are temperamental. That's a, that's another thing I preach to young skydivers nowadays because they don't realize what you're doing is hard on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's your, your arms are over your head. They're meeting resistance. You need to be, you need to be training flexibility in your chest and your shoulders strength strength yeah you got to work out you really have to look out for this stuff because you're not going to know that it's a problem until it's like too late and it's a problem and you now have shoulder issues yeah take landing accidents out of the equation what is the number one surgery skydivers get shoulder shoulder yeah shoulder i i know more shoulder surgeries than i know anything else almost including accidents but uh, it, not including if I exclude accidents, by far I've had tons of friends with shoulder surgeries. Um, it, it, our arms are getting beat up constantly. In four way, you're yanking each other around, you're pulling each other. AFF, you have a student you're anchoring off of. In free fall, you have that force on your shoulder. You're constantly raising them. It's an unstable joint. Yeah. Via, uh, have you ever messed with? Um, you've done a fair bit of free flying as well. Free flailing, yes. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty avid free flailer. So I have started to dabble very, like at the very beginning phases of VFS. Yeah. And in the beginning phases of it, it's so much static head down, and that is so rough on your shoulders, especially if you're not flying very efficiently. You know the way that tunnel progression works a lot nowadays is that a lot of us want to have our arms extended all the way out in front of us, trying to make all the lift with our arms. Mm-hmm. So when you start trying to get into VFS, you're wanting to relax your arms a little bit more, fly with your legs. But you still have that tendency, if you're going low a little bit, you want to make lift with your arms. And man, by the end of, end of like a minute and a half flight, especially if you're not doing many 360s or moving around much, your shoulders are going to be completely gassed. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Most expensive shoulder workout in the world. <laughs> Uh, man, <laughs> skydiving is, is the most expensive work on the work, world, world in general. So tandems, you've done a lot of military tandems, military active duty guys. Correct. You mentioned the intimacy of it. You know, as as an AFF instructor, seeing your face in free fall is, is phenomenal. Seeing you get it in free fall is, is wonderful. As a videographer or as an AFF instructor, getting your response on a skydive when you land, hey, how was that jump? Did you have a good time? And you get some of the coolest responses, and I'm sure you've been there to see a tandem land and hear their responses. Yeah. But when the parachute opens, yeah. how is that? That is, yeah, that's for sure. That's one of the coolest things because that's nobody else is ever going to get to share that moment with that person. And yeah, I mean, you get an array from people screaming obscenities for good <laughs> reasons or bad reasons. Like maybe sometimes <laughs> they're like, "I should have never done that. That was scary. This is horrible. Get me out of here." Or you got somebody who's like, like, like in tears, like it's almost an emotional process for them, you know? Um, what's pretty cool too is if you got like big poofy clouds in the sky and uh, like a normal canopy descent in the clear blue skies, it's still pretty fun. You can do a little 360 this way, 360 that way. But if you have somebody who's really digging it and you can, you have like the visuals of clouds off to the side and it's a, uh, I don't know. It's just really cool to get to share that moment with people. You're like, oh, you like the free fall? Check out this canopy stuff. 
Watch that cloud. We're going to do a 360. Woo! See it come up fast? That sensation of speed is is, um, is unbelievable. Oh, the G-forces on a tandem and yeah. a 360 are insane, too. I've had a straight man propose to me, and he, he was very cool about it. He's like, yo, bro, don't get me wrong. I'm straight. Will you marry me? <laughs> and I, it was so funny because I totally get what he meant. He was falling in love with the sport. He loved it. I've had more people, many people tell me, I don't know if it's possible, but I think I just had an orgasm. And most of them saying that in fun. But I've heard a few occasions of people actually saying, I believe I just had an orgasm. And we, we call them airgasms. Um, I don't know if any of those people really have or haven't. I, I can't vouch for it, but people have sworn that they have. Um, I've actually had a lady reach back and grab my junk with intent. Um, <laughs> this is the same lady who I believe is a swinger. Um, I believe that because two weeks later she reached out to me. She goes, hey, I live in Dallas. I just did a tandem with you down in Houston. I'll be back next week. I know you said you're married. I'm not coming to skydive, but would you and your light wife like to get together? I'm going to be very straightforward. And she described exactly what she wanted to do with us. And I'm like, uh, thank you, but that's not my style. <laughs> so... Um, Man, you, you meet all types on tandems. Yeah, like I said, I'm only at 66, so uh, experiences are pretty minimal, and I've all been with active duty military people. Yeah. So it's uh, pretty much everybody I've taken is just more or less woohooed and like, oh my gosh, that was awesome. Oh my gosh, this is your job? You get paid to do this? And I'm like, yes. And uh, man, even, even in that moment, you know, I was there front riding on somebody for my first tandem, falling in love with the sport. And you're like, they're like, I, I can't believe this is your job. Like, this could be your job. A hundred percent. Just try. Man, it's it's so much fun and getting those intimate moments. And I don't think the majority of tandem students I've skydived with will ever remember my name, but they'll all remember my moment. You know, I don't know how many times I've met a jumper. Who did you do your tandem with? Or somebody who's only jumped on Who did your tandem with? I don't know, man. But he was this... He was this really short guy with tattoos. Oh, that was your video guy, Nick, or, you know, whatever. They remember who you were. They don't have to remember my name, and I I really don't care that they do. But the fact that I got to be a life-defining moment for you, dude, what a blessing, man. I'm something that you'll always talk about. And and you not talk about me, but, man, I went on this skydive once. I am a major part of your life. And I don't, have you got to do anything special like birthdays, anniversaries, any special life moments for skydives yet? No, uh, like reenlistments and whatnot for people. But you, you do bring up a really cool, like, that person's probably going to have a picture of you on their wall mm-hmm. that they'll keep in their house for the rest of their life. Yeah. Unless most people who pursue skydiving eventually try to act like their first tandem didn't happen for, for like the majority of it. Like, they don't, they don't hang their first tandem Lame. picture of their house. <laughs> Lame. Now, I, uh, I will say it's this is almost a shame, but I do have my first skydiving picture hung in the house. It's in that closet. Nice. Now, that closet sounds like a really weird place to have it, but if you open that closet up, that is the rest of my business. I run my business out of this house, and there's actually a whole setup, and so it's not, not on display. Um, almost every year I share my first jump, uh, whether it's the video or whether it's a picture, because... I cannot find mine. You can't. Oh. I cannot find it. No pictures, no video, no nothing. No. Um. Yeah. I th- maybe pictures. I'm, I have to like go like s- sort through my Facebook. Where uh, did you do your first jump at? A small drop zone in Louisiana that's not even open anymore. The one west of Gillum. No, it wasn't Vivian. It was. Uh, it would have been east of Lake Charles. In okay. between, in, but before you get to Slidell. Yeah. It was like Gravity Sports or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. That uh, Jacques Damaso in that place. Yeah, that's right. Jacques. But Jacques wasn't my tandem instructor. It was Corey. Corey or Jason? 
think it was Jason. Jason, that dude, that dude ended up being on a four-way team yes. with uh, Antonio. Antonio, yes. Before Antonio became a dude, straight-up ninja. So, if you've done any training with me, one of the things a lot of people recognize and will make fun of me is I like to play the really dumb student. And I'm sorry if you're not, even if you're watching this on Facebook, you won't be able to see the face. But it's this face right here. I don't get it. And and if you're not watching, it's there. You can't see it at all. My jaw hangs open. My tongue sticks out just a little bit, and I've got this real dumb look on my face. It's pretty natural for me. And and Jason came up to me. He did his first his first. He did his tandem course with him and Corey that weekend. He stuck around into tandems for Spaceland to get a little bit of experience before they went back to Gravity Sports. And he walked up to me for his first tandem. He said, "You're fucking with me." What are you talking about? Or I said, uh, "What do you mean?" He goes, "You're fucking with me." Dude, I'm not fucking with you. What are you talking about? Dude, you're messing with me. Don't mess with me. Bro, I don't know what you're talking about. What's going on? Dude, this is my first student. You're messing with me. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? He goes, that face. What are you talking about, Jason? Dude, that dumb face you make? I'm like, yeah. That dumb face I told you nobody makes that face? Yeah, yeah. I know the face you're talking about. He goes, dude, my student makes that face. He's been making that face the entire time. Tell me you put him up to this. I'm like, no. Bro, I had to have no clue. <laughs> and I walked by a student five minutes later, and I didn't even have to ask who it was because his student had that look on his face, man. Yeah, Jason Romero. That's I was trying to think of his last name. Yeah, That sounds right. Yeah, no, I'm positive that's his last name. Jason Romero. Him and I have stayed in touch over the years. A super, super good dude, although he doesn't jump anymore because he's a bit of a girl. Uh-oh. Yeah. Man, it is a skydiving or doing a tandem instructor jump. With your examiner on the aircraft can be quite the nerve-wracking experience. Oh, you, you, like, you, you like run through your jokes, and then you're like, "Was there so-? like you'll see uh, your examiner looking at you, and you're like, "Was there something wrong with that joke? Am I making yeah. my student nervous? Why did he look? Why did he look over his shoulder like that? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Yeah. Where's my drogue? I got my drogue. I've <laughs> gotten to the point as an examiner that I don't even want to be around you when you make your first tandem. Like at some point, I'm going to cruise by, give you a fist bump, like. Enjoy your, and it's enjoy your jump. It's like, yeah, man, you earn this. Go have fun. And then I don't even watch you because I want to sign your paperwork if I don't trust you. And I, I want to watch you the whole time, not because I don't trust you, but because I'm proud of you, man. I want to like be there to cheer you on. But I realize what you just said. People get so nervous. So I'm like, yo, have a good jump, bro. And then I walk away. And then when you land, I stand in a place where you won't, if there's catchers, if there's need for catchers, I won't go out and catch if, if you're doing your first hand and I just trained you. Because I don't want you to see me at all, man. I want you to enjoy yourself. And then when you're done, I'll go congratulate you and say what's up. Because I sat across the plane from Jason Romero. We had the, the, the otter with, across, with a, a side benches, like you mentioned, with the team. And I watched him look at me every time he did something. And I just giggled because, like, I don't care, Jason. You wouldn't be sitting there right now if I had a problem. And it, it is a little nerve-wracking. So the tandem team is kind of what's next in your life. Uh, ideally, that's oh. something what I'd like to do. Yeah. At one point in time, I was pursuing canopy piloting pretty hard. But the Army nixed that. Yeah, the Golden Knights unfortunately nixed it just to keep up with mission requirements. Yeah. So, And that's one of the things I wanted to, to dive into is uh, for years, the Army had a lot more stringent regulation on what you guys could jump for canopies. And a very good-looking man in a red gimp outfit broke the mold. <laughs> Do you know what I mean with that gimp outfit? I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, Greg Windmiller, he's a good buddy of mine. I love Greg to death, and, and I would say that to him uh, even more emphatically if he was here, the gimp outfit. 
Uh, Greg is the first Golden Knight who was a competitive swooper. And he broke the mold for the Army. And actually, at some point, uh, Joe, I don't remember Joe's last name, A. Joe Ablin. That's actually the team leader for the gold demonstration team now. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Um, he's here in town, too. I think he was part of the swoop team as well. Correct. Um, Yourself became part of the swoop team? I was like a part-timer would be the best way I can describe it. In between demos, if I could catch like a weekend off and Mm -hmm. there happened to be a competition, if my leadership was cool enough with me doing it. I would train up for that week, and I'd go compete in the demo that week. I'm over here banging on things on this microphone. Making Quit it. Noise. Stop doing that. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> That's for you, Justin. Um, Don't make me mute your microphone. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and so for, what was it, two or three years, the Golden Knights competed through uh, FSCPA and a couple other? I want to say it was six to seven years. Was it that long? Yep. Man, I lose track of time. I'm getting old. And you actually competed in some of those. I did. Uh, I did... Oh, man, two or three FLCPAs. I did two NECPLs, which is the Northeastern mm-hmm. Canopy Piloting League. And then I did one SunPath Open. I haven't done a Nationals yet. I really want to try to do Nationals this year. And that's going to be going on your own dime, your own time now, because the Golden Knights are no longer supporting it? Um, they have kind of opened up their the doors to doing... So before, what kind of what some of the issue was, was like your job's demo, so like the Army's not going to pay for you to compete. Now that we don't have a swooping competition section, I think they might be a little more open to us trying to compete in swooping, like if we're down to do it, you know. Um, Currently, I'm on a Velo 84, which if you're in competition swooping nowadays, like a Velo is a great parachute for the accuracy event. And it's really, I mean, if you get super used to any parachute and super consistent with it, you can do pretty good in competition mm-hmm. if you're consistent. Uh, but the newer wings that are coming out, the Valkyries and the hybrids, they they just carry further. Yes. And when it comes to those power events like distance, it's you're really gonna it you'd be hard pressed to to beat a Valkyrie. Have you got on the VK yet? I have, yes. Yeah. Uh, Joe lets me jump a Valkyrie every once in a while, but between the the one demo team we have one Valkyrie eighty four. So <sighs> Um, every Sad. once in a while, he'll let me get my jump on on. It was definitely, it was a really fun parachute. It was twitchier than I expected it to be after, you know, a thousand-ish jumps velocity or So whatever. I want you to change the way you say that. And you, and tell me if I'm wrong. You're twitchier. It's more responsive. Correct. Definitely correct. Yeah. No, I mean, it took like, I mean, within the flight, doing a few practice flares, I learned how to, that, you know, basically I was just. I was flaring twitchy or whatever, yeah. or, or moving around in my harness more than I thought I was. You're noisier as a pilot than you realize is what it is. Because when I first went to the VK, my immediate response was like, this thing is responsive. Anything I do, I know about. And what it does is, is as your everyday skydiver, I think most of us know the words are flying noisy, which imagine me on my belly with my hands, whether it's mantis or in box, they should be sitting still. Yep. If they're bouncing around, moving around, they're noisy. You're, you're, you have unnecessary movement. And in canopy flight, with with many canopies, you can get away with that unnecessary movement without much response. But that canopy is so effing responsive. Anything you do, you're going to know. You about. can really get it going fast, though. Oh, yeah. And I think the thing I used to really struggle with on the velo was slowing down the turn, the first part of the turn. You know, it's like for a 270, trying to do a nice slow 90 to 135 ish. 
and then really whip the the last part of it. Yes. That's that's like the struggle, in my opinion, in my personal journey is trying to figure it I out. I do a lot of swoop coaching, and it's not just you. I constantly am having to beat on people for that. And the Valkyrie, I don't know why, because it's responsive. You'd think it would want to turn quicker, but once you figure it out, it's easier to kind of get it turning slow, slow, slow. And then when you want to turn that thing around, the first time that you send it, you're probably going to over-rotate a little bit because it is so responsive. Yeah, I, I think everybody who gets on a VK, the first thing I tell everybody and the first thing I, I hear from everybody is it is more responsive. It over-rotates. It, doing 90, you'll never notice it. But you get anything bigger than that and you start doing a 270, my first 270 at 45 was a 305 or 315. Yeah, 315. I had to do the math real quick. My first 270 was 45 degrees over. Now, it was 45 degrees over, and then I brought it back. And almost <laughs> everybody on a VK I see do the same thing. Over-rotate their 270, bring it back in the end just fine. But they're like, oh, my God. Um, DQ, do you know DQ? Uh, yes, DQ is rad or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said uh, when he got under canopy on the VK, he got on one right before I did. He beat me by a couple days. And he's like, dude, first of all, you're in canopy and I don't know what to do with my hands was my first thought. My second thought is like, oh, my God, I'm going so fast. My third thought was I haven't unstowed my brakes yet. And that was my experience, man. I went from um, – actually, I went from a Velocity 90 to a VK90 demo to a VK84 demo and settled on the 84. Um, I'd like to have smaller, but I don't stay current on my VK much. I mainly jump my Spectre for work. Um, and, dude, it – man, it, I love that wing. It's It's fun. Yeah. And it just keeps on going. It doesn't stop. The the thing that I've I've I don't I don't have a whole bunch of Valkyrie jumps, but uh I say maybe fifty, sixty. The thing that I almost like if you're trying to do that really aggressive finish to a turn, you have to like start it and stop it almost at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like start stop. Bang. And that thing is turned around. Yeah. But my God, I love the shutdown power it has. Um, I love how you can, uh, on a no-win day, I go further and run less. That Those riblets, I mean, just, have you have you been jumping the hybrid VK or the standard VK? The uh, standard VK. Man, so one of the things I miss about a velocity, let's go to standard VK for one second. Velocity. The responsiveness on the rears was better on a velocity than the standard VK. To me, the standard Valkyrie, the rears are a little bit mushy, so to speak. And I like firmer rears. To me, it's like sports car suspension. If I have a little bit more firm input, I feel everything that's going on, and it helps me stay connected to the vehicle a lot better. With the standard or with the, with the hybrid VK, man, the rear pressure is going to be a little bit higher. Nothing that's uncomfortable, nothing you can't do. But that pressure, that input, that immediate feedback that you like, you're going to get back, dude. It's it's a beautiful wing. So I actually have a uh, new 84 hybrid in the closet right there that I just packed Uh-oh. up. Taking that to the DZ and hopefully uh, doing all tandem front rides next week. So I won't be jumping it next week. <laughs> oh, I got to squeeze one in. End of the day. Get you some pond action. <sighs> yeah. End of the day, it'll be. Uh, number one, I don't swoop the pond. Okay. I hate wet feet. Uh-huh. I hate wet feet. I swoop the pond plenty of times in my life. Yeah. Got plenty of toe drags in my life. Do you know about the, I, I, I might be educating you and I might not Bring be, it. but check this out. For wet shoes, uh, roll down your car window, stick the open end where your foot goes into the shoe out the window, roll the window back up and drive home like that. Dry shoes by the time you get home. Well, man, I don't need wet shoes in my car in the first place. No, that so that's news to me. Um, I used to uh, in the STP room in Spaceland. I used to keep a fan up there, 
and I used to actually keep three pairs of shoes at the drop zone. And anytime my feet would get wet, I would just put a pair of shoes and socks in front of that fan, and they wouldn't dry after one load. So I would take three loads and just rotate them over and over again. <laughs> and that's I, a pretty cool system. Oh, dude, I hate wet feet. I just, it's, it's, it, it, I worked out my first. Tony, sex tape. <laughs> my first, uh, <laughs> my first job ever was a scullery attendant in a Marine Corps mess hall, which means dishwasher. So I washed dishes for four years in a Marine Corps mess hall as a kid, a civilian uh, contracted job. How often are your feet wet in the when you're washing dishes? In the like the, the whole time, yes. they're, they're wet the whole time. Yeah, yeah. straight up. I your your whole yeah trench I, foot. It's that bad. And if you, I mean, trench foot, you're in the trenches all day long in war. Your feet are totally wet. You take your shoes off, and your skin's falling off your feet. No joke to that statement. That is, I four years of that job. Ever since then, I hate wet feet. Just. Dude, ah, man, <laughs> I got a problem right now. <laughs> you okay over there? You no, know, man. Oh, wet feet. Wet feet. Nah, yeah, no. Don't pour, please don't pour. So, yeah, no wet feet. <laughs> Aisle five, Walmart. <laughs> so uh, you, we, we've we've kind of talked a little bit about your goal, your journey to become a Golden Knight, where where you've gone. I want to wrap it up, and we're actually really close to the end. We're ten minutes away from two hours. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. That would did go yeah. a lot faster. It, it yeah. does. The thing that I really didn't get to talk about yet, and to me, really, I think the best part of this conversation is as a demonstration jumper, you've got to do jumps that I'll never imagine. You've got to jump into some of the coolest things ever. Tell me some of those stories. Oh, man. I got some real good. I got some ones that I definitely can't share here on the podcast. Um, that, share the that, ones that you can. That makes some, some good stories. One of the most monumental ones was last year jumping through the St. Louis Arch. I was just showing that video. That looked fucking amazing. That was a good time. That I mean, that when I joined the team in 2012, uh-huh. my first year was 2013. That was the year that the government was going through sequestration. Yeah. Right? And we, we weren't traveling. We weren't doing demos. We still had a budget to train with, but um, in 2011... I think was the last year the team had done the arc. So it was just like this pinnacle of like a thing that I always wanted to do. And then last year that finally came to fruition. And when you show up to the arch in St. Louis, it is awe inspiring, intimidating. I mean, this it's 600 something feet tall. It, it presents a whole bunch of unique challenges that you wouldn't really think much of. Um, one of them being that it's very turbulent. It itself is a giant metal arch, so it's putting off uh, thermals as you fly close to it, um, and then obviously air going around it. Yeah, and and we always make it a goal, like almost in any wind condition, you can find a way to fly through the arch, except for really strong wind conditions, because then you obviously don't want to get uh, too far behind the power curve just for the sake of flying through the arch. That was a good one. Uh, another one. That was super memorable. Was how wide is the arch? Sorry, I'm, I'm. I couldn't even tell you. You'd have to take a look at somebody like standing underneath it. it it's it's pretty big. It's... Actually, if you look, oh, I guess you, it wouldn't be on my Facebook, but on my Instagram, I think I may have posted a video where I kind of swooped. I planed out before one leg and only made it to a little over halfway through. That's pretty which, large. Which definitely it's wasn't because 600 of 600 my... feet wide at the base. 
that sounds like a good half swoop. Or okay. I mean, this like yeah, good swoop. Um, and by the way, if you're listening to this on a podcast, we will have Blake's uh, Instagram link, so you'll be able to uh, follow that pretty quickly and pretty easily. Nice. And we always link uh, the guests' uh, Facebook contact info in there. Instagram, any social media they have, or any other contact info they want. Cool. We'll end up uh, linking the Golden Knights website to this as yeah, well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, for sure, dude. Yeah. So that was a cool one. Another really cool one was a small town in Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And we jumped into a Memorial Day parade. Um, and that, man, it was, just, it was just a narrow, small town, downtown intersection. And there was a parade getting ready to kick off. So, I mean, there was people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a hair crosswind. It was super light. I want to say the winds were like three to four miles per hour. But you're landing in between about two to three story buildings on either side of you. And you're trying to land straight down this road. So it wasn't really an intersection. It was in between two intersections. But as you're trying to fly your final and light winds down this intersection or down this stretch of road, that's about a block long. It kind of sloped down. Very slight angle. 10 to 15 degrees. I guess that would be pretty big angle. About 8 to 10 degrees, let's say. Uh, so as you're trying to fly down on final, you're also like the floor's coming out from underneath you, and there's light poles at the end of it. So, uh, And then there's crosswind, so you're kind of holding a crab angle, trying to stay into the road, and then all of a sudden you'll bust through that wind just a little bit, and now you're over the crowd on that side. So in order to get back to the middle of the road, you don't actually face that way. You just kind of turn your parachute straight down the road, and so the whole time it was a small one to two degree flat adjustments. And you're like, okay, crowd, power lines, power, <laughs> light poles, power lines, cold crowd, crowd, crowd. And I remember I got so caught up watching all this. I didn't even see there was a photographer in the middle of the road because my big concern when I'm doing a demo is the crowd. Sure. I don't want to ever hurt the crowd. That's, that's like demonstrator code in my opinion. It's, it's yourself before the crowd. So I do all this stuff, and I get it in the road, and I took a really high transition. I probably shut it down from about 15 feet off the ground, and I land, and all of a sudden, this body just woof, is standing in front of me, and it was some photographer that was <laughs> so busy taking pictures of whatever he was taking pictures of, he wasn't paying attention to me either. And he looks at me, and he goes, I'm sorry, and, and it took me a second. I was like, for what? Were you standing there the whole time? <laughs> that was a pretty Surprise! cool Surprise! <laughs> Dude, uh, did, did he happen to get any pictures of you as you landed? No, somebody else did, though. Because imagine the look on <laughs> your crazy. face when you're that close to each other <laughs> if he's taking shots. Uh, man, another really cool one. I, we could probably wrap it up with this story. Okay. This is probably one of my pinnacle of my career jumps because uh, everything could have gone wrong, but everything went right. Uh, it was a Cornhuskers football game in Nebraska. And the winds, the upper winds were just ridiculous. We started off with an eight-person team, and we do dry passes. We take off 30 minutes before we jump, and we just do circles. Like We, we practice our running, and we see what our ground speed is and all that stuff and take all this into consideration because you're kind of you're bracketing. You know, you'll throw a, a wind tester in there and then readjust your spot. We were getting like 60 knots off the nose on one pass. And then we get like 40 knots off the nose on the next pass. That's a big difference. Down at the stadium, it was like 14 miles per hour at the lip, which is like one mile per hour At the less. lip, meaning the top of the stadium? Yep. Okay. Which is one mile per hour less than what is acceptable. Right? If, if, it goes over, if it goes to 16 at the lip of the stadium, we're done. Uh, we're not, we're not, we, we cannot safely perform that jump according to our procedures. 
So it's all yeah, like we're saying, like you're getting sixty off the nose, forty off the nose is a big change. So the team leader cut three people from the jump, basically just the back three people. Basically, if he he took that little window that he's thinking he needs to get in and shrunk it down a little bit because there's going to be less people spread out, it would make it just a little bit safer. Um, but we were still right on the edge. We were, I I was like a mile away from the stadium when I opened, but I faced it, and I got into my rear risers and. At the time, that was kind of my understanding of what the concept is. But actually, after reading the parachute and its pilot, I may have tried a few more techniques <laughs> in getting back, like the like getting in brakes, just trying to get to your slowest descent rate with a strong tailwind. Mm-hmm. At the time, what I was going off of was if I was short, fighting into the wind, I used front risers or dual outside A-lines, um, which is... I wouldn't do that on like a, a Velocity or a Valk or anything like that, just because I don't really know anything about it on those parachutes. But on the big accuracy parachutes, it's effective because if you pull out on just the front risers, you can actually expose so much top skin of the parachute to the strong winds that you'll begin to drift even like you're. Yeah. So quick time out on those high performance mains. Um, frontal collapse is what you're avoiding by not doing it. Your advice is sound and correct. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know it, get advice from somebody who does before you try it. Yeah. That would create a frontal we've, collapse on those wings. <laughs> we've, we've made jokes about doing it. Um, no one's. Everyone's kind of foreseeing that the, those parachutes are too twitchy to actually mess with just a single A-line. Um, so, but then the antithesis of that was if you were long, get in your rears because it actually will slow down your descent rate a little bit. And that's just what we were going off at the time. And it worked out. I mean, I could definitely see I, I tucked up in a ball because I thought that was going to help. In retrospect, if I maybe had a big body position and been in rears, that could have get. I don't agree with that. Well, I mean, there's a lot of opposing yeah, theories. Yeah. And every time I tell this story, I get a little bit something different from somebody. But the main takeaway from the story is what I had been taught, it worked out for me. Yeah. I tucked in a ball. I got in my rears. And I could see that my angle to getting into that stadium was just a little bit over the lip. And as soon as I let off my rears, it was into the side of the stadium. And Couldn't have planned it any luckier. Scan, scan, scanning out for outs, I had nothing. You know, I had, I had like roofs of buildings, and there's obviously something going on with the winds. I do not want to take a building rooftop as a landing because you're going to get blown off almost instantly. So I just had to make a big decision. Like, I'm committing to the stadium. I'm going to get in the stadium. And it was just kind of a, I don't say like do or die, but I mean, it was like there was no other option. If I, if I made any other like kind of timid decision, it could have really got me hurt. And it's kind of something that you get coached on at some point in time in your Golden Knight career. Like you're going to be faced with a jump where you have to have the don't quit mentality. Like you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be scared, but you have to commit. And I did. I cleared that lip with 50 feet to spare in my rear risers. And I was basically like, so our technique for getting to stadiums on those big parachutes too is what we call it lip it as low as possible. So you actually want to cross into a stadium as low as possible. Give your time as give yourself as little time to make errors throughout the duration of your flight in the stadium. And if anybody out there has ever flown into a stadium or not, there's wires behind the field goals and those live action cameras. If you watch football, it's a it's a spider web. They they disconnect one wire, they pull it off to one side of the thing, and it's there's a lot of stuff going on inside. You're of dodging a stadium the entire time you're in it. It's it is is it's a bit of a task. And I was like, so I lift it lower than I wanted to. I mean, 50 feet above is not preferable. You know, you de- I mean, you definitely want the illusion of being close, but you're never as close as you think you are. Yeah. 
So I was like, okay, man, I'm just going to get in the stadium. I'm going to take a downwinder landing. It's going to be embarrassing because I'm going to be on all these uh, news networks and people are going to, I'm probably like, given the winds, a downwinder was probably going to be pretty intense. You know, and those canopies are not like a, a velocity. Like a downwinder doesn't look cool on these. <laughs> you, 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 <laughs> you, you pound in and it looks silly. And I got, I had just enough time. I was like, oh man, I think I can take a crosswinder. So I'd made a nice, slow 90-degree turn to get crosswind. I was lined up just – I'd flown just a little bit past the 50-yard line, and I was probably still like 60, 70 feet off the ground. And once again, keep in mind, I'm talking about seven-cell accuracy parachutes. I'm 60, 70 feet off the ground. I have enough time to make another 90-degree turn. All right, so for anybody out there in, uh, in newer to skydiving, please don't try that on your sport parachute if you think you're going to take a crosswinder that actually happened to me when i was a younger jumper i was about 100 jumps and i i ended up like i I made some like low flat turn mistakes and took a crosswind landing and did like the typical mistake where one arm goes down lower than the other in order to catch the ground so anyways disclaimer (laughs) i was at about 70 feet off the ground i made another 90 degree flat turn on the final and, and basically just in an effort to get my nose faced into the wind for a soft landing, I landed right on the 50-yard line, right in the middle of the emblem. Oh. And this whole skydive, I mean, I'm breathing heavy. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in my, my, biggest, my biggest skydiving war story ever right now. This is crazy. There's, oh, my gosh. I really got to commit and commit to the, the tactics and techniques and the things that I've been trained to do. And I did. I just stuck with my training and it worked. But in that initial moment, I was like, oh, man, like bonus points. I'm going to get turned into the wind for this landing and I'm probably not even going to fall down. (laughs) And I like did what I was supposed to do and just landed in the middle of of the field. And I actually ended up on like ESPN2 or Fox News or something. (laughs) And I landed on it. And if you know anything about landing those accuracy parachutes, if it stalls after you land, you didn't you weren't flying it very good. It should actually kind of like crash down in front of you. But I landed and that thing stalled behind me and I still had the toggles in my hand. <laughs> and all those parachutes just, uh, you know, falling on the ground behind me. And I am just laughing like, I can't believe that that just <laughs> happened. Uh, and I think for the longest time, it just looked like I, I really knew what I was doing. But really, I was... All your that, teammates that, that, gave you grief? I was on the hardest guy. To, they didn't know either. <laughs> they didn't even know. They were like, how'd you jump go? And I was like, uh, you know, I just saved it for debrief a lot of times. And after you do a demo, if something goes wrong on a jump, you don't talk about it right then and there. You got people watching anyway or wanting to hear what you have to say. You don't want to be yeah. like, oh, man, I almost messed up big time. <laughs> <laughs> I barely cleared it. Man, I want to go back from that conversation because I do want people to hear this this conversation. Get big or get small. Um, Yeah, and and what's going to help you get back better from a long spot? And the theory is basically turn my body into a cell. A lot of people think, well, I'm going to get really big. I'm going to grab air. I'm going to turn my body into a cell. Uh, The other theory is I'm going to get really small, creating less drag for my body, allowing my wing to fly faster. And if my wing flies faster, it generates more lift. That is absolutely true. The creating a cell with your body only changes if an outside drag influence is available. Example, if I'm in a boat, the sail, a small sail on a boat, the boat has the outside drag of the water, will go slower than a large sail on the same size boat, again, the drags of water. But if you look at a stick and a leaf in a river, they flow at the exact same rate. 
One's a lot more drag, one's a lot more of a sell, and the other one is a little itty-bitty stick. So if there's an outside drag influence, then the size of the sail matters. But if there's no outside drag influence, those things are going to flow the same in any fluid, air being a fluid. And you're saying the outside drag influence, meaning the wind that's pushing you back or the wind resistance well, so you're getting by getting big? You and your wing are all in the same fluid. You and your wing are all in the air. So there's no external drag. So in other words, if you and your wing were in the air, but you were dragging a toe across the ground or you were dragging your toe across the water, there's some other force and effect besides the air you're in. Then it's going to matter getting big because you want to be a bigger cell to overcome the outside drag. But when you're in the air, you're static in the air. You don't see any – you're not – you are in that – you are in that fluid. You are in that flow. You're in that river. So it's, it's something that we've looked at, something we've talked about, something I do a lot in canopy coaching. And something you also mentioned is a lot of people will teach use your rears to get back from a long spot. And people still preach and teach it to this day. But if you go to good canopy coaches, you go to a lot of high-level coaching, you're going to hear more and more use your brakes. But the thing is, is it depends. And you mentioned that. It depends. I believe most skydivers who preach use your rears to get back from a long spot. And I ask them, why do you preach that? Because it's what works for me all the time. I believe it works for them because they only worry about a long spot when they're on a no-wind day. When there's no wind, use your rears. Yep. When there's a tailwind, use your brakes. And the fact is, is when we have a tailwind, how often do we feel like we're on a long spot? Well, only when we're a mile away from a stadium. But other than that, how often on a windy day have you felt like you're on a long spot, Justin? Almost never. Almost never, no. Yeah. So we rarely think about long spots unless we're on a no-wind day. So the most often time we're worried about long spots, we're on our rears because it's a no-wind day and it does work best. But wind is a river of air. Let's kill Blake. Sorry, Blake. Um, sorry, Sherry. We killed. Actually, she's probably happy about this. We killed Blake. <laughs> um, now let's throw your dead body in a river. It's going 20 miles an hour. You float in that river for an hour. You're going 20 miles. You float in that river for 30 minutes. You're going 10 miles. Getting in brakes, you mentioned, slows your descent rate down. It allows you to float in the river longer, so now you travel faster or further. Let's kill you and throw you in a lake. No wind is not a river. No wind is a lake. You're going to go nowhere for as long as you float there. So using brakes on a no-wind day is not productive because you're slowing down your forward speed and your descent rate, where on a no-wind day, flattening out your glide is more about trim than it is anything else. Yeah. So specifically to that jump, I now believe that brakes would have worked better for that jump. Yeah. Because it, it was there was there was definitely an aspect of some howling upper winds. <laughs> you know that would have that would have paid off big time. I mean, ultimately it all worked out. Um, but it's man, never done learning. Dude, man, I, I I learn all the time. Thank God. I was on a fun jump here in Spaceland. This is many years ago. Uh, it was a six-way. I landed on the DZ. A couple of my friends' staff guys were laughing as I walked in. I'm like, is my fly down, bro? What's going on? And they're like, oh, no, no, dude. You're the only guy who made it back. I'm like, why the fuck is that funny, dude? Because you had a seven-cell. Everybody else had a nine-cell. The nine-cell naturally is going to glide further between the canopy types we had. And every single one of those guys on that jump used their rear risers, two of them, argue with you all the time about rears versus brakes. <laughs> You're the only guy in your brakes. You made it back easy, and none of them made it back. Um, know the conditions, and, and fuck what I'm telling you right now, and I say not you, any jumper listening to this. 
Go out and practice these things. Go out and use these things on a regular basis. You don't have to be on a long spot to practice a long spot. Get open, fly towards a drop zone, look at something past the drop zone, and practice with your rears. Practice with your brakes and see what makes it sink or fast, uh, sink faster or slower. Just make sure you don't pass the drop zone. Fly crosswind, which is the equivalent of no wind, no headwind, no tailwind. Crosswind is a no wind leg said and done when you're talking when you're practicing sync rate and try and see what makes something across when go faster or slower try it into the wind you can play with these things every day absolutely so i don't want to really detract from our conversation but for those jumpers listening that's just kind of a and also for you i guess with that cell versus that, that stick versus leaf in a river thing and i think just looking at that river and stick in a in a river stick in a leaf in a river you've seen it they flow at the same rate and that's kind of that evidence that shows you that that I want to say theory, but theory is, is unproven, that, that principle. Yeah, no, it's a super interesting concept. It's, it definitely has me thinking. Don't think too hard. So as we wrap up here, man, <laughs> it is uh, just over two hours. Any last things you want to share with your friends, with your family? Any last thing you want to share about the Golden Knights? Uh, just and First of all, thank you guys for having me out. This has been a pretty fun experience. This is my first podcast. So I would like a case of water or something like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> ice cream sandwiches. Ice cream you sandwiches. Ice cream, ice cream sandwiches. sandwiches. Sold. Uh, and then anybody out there who's listening, please give us a follow on uh, Instagrams. We're the at Army Golden Knights. My demo team specifically is at GK Gold Team. If anybody in the Houston area watching this has any questions about the Army or the opportunities available in the Army or the Golden Knights, come visit us at the uh, NASA Space Center at the Space Center Houston Jump tomorrow at 920. After our jump, we're going to be hanging out. We're going to be talking to people. That's what we're here for. Uh, and we'd love to tell you about it. And the same thing for the Discovery Green Jump tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at night after we get done jumping. We'd love to, we'd love to meet anybody who wants to talk about this. So. Um, please come forward and meet us. If not, reach out on social media and let us know what's up. Man, thank you for being here. This was actually an off week for us. Uh, in a just over a week from now, the fucking pilot, uh, the lunatic fringe into the void. The fucking pilot is is his title. The lunatic fringe into the void is the name of the podcast. I was on his show this week. He releases in a week and a half. We release to this will be out in about an hour from now. I release tonight because I'm done with post production. Um, but uh, we were in an off week. You hit me up. Actually, I told you you were actually trying to contact me during that podcast, which is what took us so long. Um, thank you for actually giving us something to do this week. Mr. Grubbs, thank you for fitting this into your schedule because really you're the one who helped make this happen said and done. Uh, you fitting it into your schedule is a huge help. So thank you for being here, brother. Yeah, sure thing, man. I'm just blowing off work. It's all good. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, Mr. G, you got anything else to share? No. Nope. Then you know it. what to do. Guys and gals, we will be back Sunday night with Luis Pernetto from Fly for Life. Claudio, not Claudio, uh, Carlos will be joining us. It'll be all of us back in studio. Nick, Justin, Carlos, and Luis. Check it out. We'll see you then. Blue skies, leave my house. <laughs> I don't want to leave. I want to stay. I thought we were going to spoon. <laughs>